0: Hi, this is Sarah from Oklahoma. Dusted is a Storywonk podcast. To show your support and for exclusive content, visit patreon.com slash storywonk. Thanks!
1: everyone and welcome to the show i'm lonnie Diane rich
2: i'm alistair stevens and this is dusted you're fresh from the scum pits of or buffy the vampire slayer podcast
1: <laughs> this week we're watching episodes 20 21 and 22 of season two of angel over the rainbow through the looking glass and there's no place like plurt's Glurb. you say
2: watching you mean marathon yes. three <laughs> episodes of angel this week these episodes aired on the 8th the 15th and the 22nd of May, 2001, and were written respectively by Mayor Smith, by Tim Minear, and by David Greenwald.
1: Absolutely. And we also have some doubling up on directorial duty with our writing staff. Uh, Mayor Smith's Over the Rainbow was directed by Frederick King Keller, but Tim Minear directed his episode, Through the Looking Glass, and David Greenwald directed his episode, There's No Place Like Plurt Slurp.
2: And the three work really comfortably together, very mm-hmm. companionably together as a single arc. Which is what makes this episode of Dusted so unusual. On the one hand, these three episodes form one single unified story. It would make no sense to talk about these episodes individually (laughs) because they are woefully and wildly incomplete on their own. We could also, I think, have rolled up last week's episode, Belonging, Mm -hmm. into this discussion too. But if three episodes feels like a lot, four feels overwhelming. So I think this is the right place to cut it. (laughs) On the other hand, this arc is also somewhat unique for Angel. It is never going to do anything quite like this again. Buffy is never going to do anything quite like this again, not just structurally, but also in terms of tone and content. In this arc, Angel transforms itself into a fantasy series, an outright fantasy series. It's a weird bit of reorientation for a show that was struggling throughout its second season. We've talked about this a little on the podcast before, but the reason that we have so forcefully reoriented Angel here in its closing moments of season 2 is that the Darla arc did not work. The show was losing its audience, it was losing its its previously very positive critical response. Mm-hmm. So something had to be done. The Darla arc was jettisoned or was at least brought to a premature close. We spent a few weeks catching up with some outstanding loose ends. We dealt with Harmony, Mm -hmm. we dealt with Lindsay, we dealt a little with Cordelia's career as an actress, and then we're into the Pylea arc. Very little that we're going to see over the course of these three episodes is going to stick. Very little is going to mean anything at all, and Angel certainly is not going to be this going forward. The Pylea arc does not, with a few minor exceptions, give us a template for what Angel is going to be moving into season three and beyond, but it is fun.
1: It is a lot of fun. I mean, it is essentially a little fantasy vacation. Angel is urban fantasy. Angel takes place within the world of Los Angeles, within a contemporary universe. And what we've done is we've completely jettisoned that world and moved into a place where the, the rules of the world are just different. It Absolutely. is just high fantasy. It has everything in it. Uh, none of it is grounded in the kind of, you know, pseudo reality that we get from Buffy and Sunnydale, that we get from Angel. In Los Angeles. So it is almost like a Bizarro world story, except that the Bizarro world is literal and not metaphorical. We are literally in a very bizarre world.
2: Yes, we're not changing our understanding of our our usual setting or our usual characters. We're not reinterpreting them from a different perspective. We're actually just transporting them to another planet. Interestingly, Through the Looking Glass, episode 221, is the only episode in the entire run of Angel that contains no scenes set on Earth. A dubious distinction, to be sure. A Mm -hmm. questionable achievement. But an achievement nonetheless. This is a fun three-part story. It is not terribly tightly structured. It is Mm -hmm. not terribly internally consistent. It does not demonstrate a huge amount of self-control. And it is, in a sense, playing with the form. Mm -hmm. Wesley is pretty much the only one who makes it through the portal to Pylea with his personality personality intact.
0: intact, Everyone
2: else is adjusted somewhat, or in some cases... Slightly different, slightly heightened, kind of
1: flattened (laughs) a little bit by the the travel through the portal. I do love the Wesley that we get here, and I think that this leads into Wesley as we will know him for the rest of the series.
2: Wesley is one of the two things in the Pylea arc that really will stick, that really will have consequence. Yes. This really does feel like we have finally arrived at, at the core of who Wesley Wyndham Price mm-hmm. is and will be on an ongoing basis. The other, of course, is Fred. Yes. Winifred Burkle is mm-hmm. introduced in this trilogy. And... She's just terrific. She's
1: fantastic. I absolutely love this character. I love Amy Acker in the role. Um, the Pylea arc, honestly, for me, while almost nothing very little exceptions, very few exceptions. There are some things that, that will have, um, ripples throughout the rest of Angel that, that start in the Pylea arc. Uh, Fred is the one thing that happens here that I find, um, most engaging that really makes me, I think part of the reason why I enjoy the Pylea arc as much as I do is simply because of Fred, how she's characterized, how she's written. Um, and the fact that, you know, we, we get to bring her back with us. We sure do. We'll we'll talk
2: about that in, due course would you like to give us a brief previously on angel or i guess we should frame this a little yes because there are two different versions of this episode of angel and that's not unusual because mm-hmm. oftentimes the previously on segment is edited out for dvd releases for sure. streaming bundles that mm-hmm. kind of thing if you have the region one dvd of angel you you don't have the previously on segment. If you have a Region 2 or a Region 4 DVD of Angel, then you do have the previously on segment, but you also get a little bonus surprise. There's a little treat at the end where you get a brief scene of Angel and Wesley and Lorne searching Caritas for Cordelia Mm -hmm. before we cut into the episode proper. So if you see online some reference to that very brief teaser scene, Mm -hmm. that's what it's referring to. You don't really lose anything if you don't have
1: it. Which is probably why they chose to cut it. I think it's
2: it's much stronger to start with Cordelia picking up from our cliffhanger at the end of last week. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which... Would you like to bring us up to that cliffhanger? (laughs) Sure.
1: Landokmar of the Deathwalk clan came through a mysterious (laughs) portal. He's Lauren's cousin. Cordy wanted to be an actress. A friend of guns died in a vampire attack. A librarian named Fred disappeared five years ago. The portal works both ways, and they opened one in Caritas. And Cordy ended up in Pylea.
2: With that cliffhanger ending, which we pick up immediately as we move into Over the Rainbow, we're not terribly huge fans of the cliffhanger ending yeah. here at Storywonk, but I think that when your episodes are as serialized as these episodes are, and when you're treating your cliffhangers as playfully yeah. as you are, mm-hmm. this is a recurring beat. I lost count as I moved through this, this three-part series of the number of times that we get a completely standard trope Cliffhanger Mm -hmm. that we then immediately subvert. There are so many times when we will come close to ending a scene Mm -hmm. only to have our expectations subverted. A big
1: twist, and then that's what we leave
2: with. We do it between the episodes, Mm -hmm. certainly, but we do it, oh, just innumerable times. No,
1: Pylea is apparently the fantasy world of the unexpected. You know? (laughs) The subverted expectations of Pylea. It's a Mm
2: -hmm. very. Self-aware, in a weird way, a self-aware three-part story, but it's also playing true, I think, cleaving fairly close to the conventions of traditional fantasy storytelling. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little about this kind of tropey fantasy world right up front. Let's kind of clear this stuff out. How do you respond to Pylea as... A place as a setting,
1: as a world, it feels to me more or, or less than a real world that is written to actually house a fictional drama story. It feels to me like a stage that is set to to represent this kind of medieval sort of uh, fantasy place. Mm-hmm. Um, that it feels make believe. It feels like dress up. It feels like a ren fair. You know, you know um,
2: that's very well put. Yeah. I think you're I think you're on the money there. It doesn't feel fully realized. There are some parts to me that feel more complete. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of Lauren's family's home. Yeah. That feels a little more fully realized, though unfortunately. Completely disposable. But
1: also ridiculous and also yeah. subverting expectations because his mother is, is very mannish, you know. Right. And um, we have some of the ridiculous dancing, of course, that we will see Joss Whedon dressed <laughs> as a, a horned green green demon. We'll see that later. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it feels a little too ridiculous. It feels a little too self-aware.
2: Well, and a little too immediately bound by its reference. Yeah. This is clearly classic fantasy medieval Western society. Mm-hmm. And that makes no sense. How did these demons end up having, you know, castles and medieval helmets and all of the the tropes and trappings of that fantasy medieval culture that you would expect? It feels storybook. Mm -hmm. It feels almost fairy tale. It does. More than a real place, it feels like an active, functional metaphor. Mm -hmm. And it's no coincidence that it should feel like a set because of course the village is a set this is the village by the way that was redressed and shot for the scenes in the Boxer Rebellion oh. earlier in the season it's the wow. same place mm-hmm. that's redressed into the village at Felt the heart of the story more real
1: in the Boxer Rebellion
2: i think that's understandable (laughs) but I mean
1: you even think about what the titles are referencing we have over the rainbow and Mm -hmm. there's no place like plurtsklerb which is our two references to the wizard of oz in which we have you know a young girl who ends up in this in this fantasy place that doesn't feel quite real through the Looking Glass, a reference to Alice in Wonderland. Again, a young girl falls through into a place that isn't quite yes. real. So we have these references to these highly fantastical, almost imaginary, because it was all a dream all along. We right, sort of which have is that sense.
2: Kind of a problem because Pylea is not presented to us as... Imaginary. No. It's strictly speaking within the text of the show, not a metaphor. It's where in Lauren any sense. comes from. It's right. as real as Los Angeles. Yes. But because it has this exaggerated, dreamlike, fantastical quality, mm-hmm. it feels as though, and this I think actually serves the show. Yeah. I think it serves the storytelling here because it feels as though it isn't constrained by the same limitations yes. mm-hmm. as Los Angeles based right. stories mm-hmm. would feel. This feels freer, it feels more fluid, it certainly allows us to be far more funny, Mm -hmm. far, far... Not even funny, I suppose. More, not even comedic, but jokier.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. you know
2: we're just more playful,
1: S- slightly ridiculous. Yeah, you know, but and in, in, not in a dismissive way. You know, it just it has no. this kind Sometimes. of well, you know, <laughs> on occasion. But it does have this this kind of air of um, uh, uh, of almost hyperbole, like it is mm. it is exaggerated in every sense.
2: I think there's something to that. Yeah. Take us into our beat by beat rundown of Over the Rainbow. Over Would you please? The Rainbow.
1: I will. <laughs> (laughs) In Pylea, Cordy finds herself alone in the forested area of a planet with two suns. Then, suddenly, she's not alone. A monster is chasing her. In Los Angeles, Angel is determined to find a way to get Cordy back, but the portal doesn't reopen when they say the words. Wesley realizes that the hotspot is cold. It needs to recharge, but even once it's recharged, there's no guarantee they will travel together and land in the same place. Angel doesn't have time for that. They need to find another hotspot, and now... Especially once Lorne describes Pylea. They don't have music and they don't like humans. (laughs) Gunn returns to the Hyperion to tell them that he can't go with them. He lost a member of his crew and he needs to stay with them.
2: I think it's absolutely fair to say that you could start this episode 10 minutes in Mm -hmm. and not miss anything. It's vitally important that we recharge... The portal. Mm-hmm. It's vitally important that we find some way of staying together as we travel through the portal. Gun's definitely not coming with us, and I want to emphasize that as as <laughs> starkly as I possibly can. He's doing a real story over here in the periphery, you guys, and he's dealing with important stuff. None of this matters. Mm-hmm. It's a weird consequence to, I think, the imaginary fantastical tonal quality of the Pilea arc.
0: Yeah,
2: I said that that benefits the story. And I think it does because it doesn't expose just how much padding there is here. (laughs) Because it's all so fantastical and wondrous, and we are being shown things that we have never seen before, we can be distracted by the visit to Lauren's family's home, for example. Mm -hmm. A completely inessential sequence that does nothing to advance the plot. Mm -hmm. When we're in Los Angeles, it's a little more... Obvious. It's a little yeah. more pointed. We're not distracted by the awe and the wonder of a brave new world. Mm-hmm. We are kind of focused on, well, why is this taking so long? <laughs> we just need to fill half an episode before our heroes travel through to Pylea so that Cordy can advance the story so that she can be where she needs to be before we switch focus back. To our intrepid heroes,
1: right? And we have Gun doing this dance back and forth. We have Lorne going and talking to his psychic friend, which we will discuss in just a moment. We have a lot of chewing and throwing. <laughs> I
2: watched this episode not four hours ago. Yes, I had forgotten Lorne going to his completely inessential his psychic completely friend. Completely
1: inessential psychic but friend. But that's the thing. Yes,
2: that's a really fun scene, mm-hmm. and I like what we get from Gun. I yeah. think Gun is very justified. He's obviously conflicted. He's obviously torn. This is a difficult thing for him to deal with. It's a good scene. It's well-written. It's well-performed. It's got some emotional punch. Completely unnecessary. But it
1: doesn't land. If you had just had gun come back and say, yeah, I'm in, it wouldn't have been any different at it all. It wouldn't
0: at all. Um,
1: so, yeah. So that's one of those things that while we're in Los Angeles, we are, there's a lot of chewing and fro-ing um, and not much getting accomplished. It really does feel like we are simply killing time so that Cordy can get herself into enough trouble over in Pylea before yeah. we come in to save her.
2: Did feel as though we, we missed an opportunity here a little bit. This episode does suffer because it has to take place over the course of three days. We mm-hmm. get a very conspicuous line near the end of the episode when Cordelia says it has been two and a half yes. days. Mm-hmm. And we go, on the one hand, need that to happen because we need to line up with Buffy right. for our, our final conclusion, which I think we'll probably separate out and we'll try to talk about that separately from mm-hmm. from the body of the Pylea arc. But we know that time can move differently. In different dimensions. Oh, certainly. Mm-hmm. There is no real reason that these events couldn't have unfolded over the space of a couple of weeks.
1: Oh, absolutely, and it a would have been a couple of months. Even. Yeah, it would have been even more impactful had yeah. they done that. But they really moved it so quickly.
2: If we'd made it to the foot of Cordelia's throne at the end of the first episode, and she'd been there for weeks, mm-hmm. months, even. Then that would have given us even more leverage, even yeah. more potential conflict for the rest of the story. It would have given us some time for her to settle into and to feel to comfortable this life, to this world. Sure. Yeah, it would have made everything mm-hmm. feel a little less forced, and it would have given us a really interesting opportunity with Fred mm-hmm. because there's no reason that Fred had to disappear from the real world five years ago. Yeah, she could have disappeared from the real world two weeks ago. Exactly, and but that she's that been, been here really for nice. yeah. five mm-hmm. years. So I don't really mind that so much when it comes to fred i think it's great that she's had all this time i, yeah. I love that characterization i love the depth that we give to her mm-hmm. even in her her very first appearance but the cordelia stuff does happen very quickly and yeah. it means that we have to burn a lot of time just a lot of empty time in los angeles in the first half of the first episode mm-hmm. Let's keep moving on, shall we? (laughs) All
1: right. Let's go to the Pylean Forest, where Cordelia runs, but the monster turns out to be a weird kind of dog, and a demon calls her a cow, trusses her up, and drags her to market, where she is sold to an old demon woman as a slave. Back in Los Angeles, Lauren meets with an old psychic friend to find a new hotspot, while Angel gets more and more anxious at the Hyperion. Gavin Park, an inconsequential lawyer- Person from this episode that we don't really need, but it's Daniel Day Kim. So I don't I'm know happy. why you're
2: doing that. Gavin Park's going to come back, you guys. Daniel Day Kim is the best. Daniel Day Kim him. is
1: the best, and I love it. But this is the chewing and frowing Gavin yes. is is inconsequential in this episode. He's a lawyer from Wolfram and Hart, and he shows up to bury Angel in regulatory paperwork regarding the hotel, which makes Angel want even more to get out of this world. Luckily, Wes has it all figured out. Angel leaves a voicemail message for Gunn, giving him all the information on the business in case they don't come back.
2: Did you expect it to be Gunn?
1: That he was leaving the message
2: for? I'm somewhat confused by that. Like, I get the the mechanic that's in play here. Yeah, mm-hmm. And I actually rather like the idea that Angel is outright manipulating Gunn. While keeping this very oh, I didn't read it
1: as manipulation. I read it as genuinely handing the business over to Gun because they may not no, come back.
2: I think that's absolutely a valid interpretation. I mm-hmm. think there's an alternate interpretation where Angel knows that if he lays out the stakes for Gun, mm-hmm. Gun will come with them, and that Gun is needed. Yeah, I don't think it's something that Angel does lightly. But I think that there, there definitely is a possible reading of this where he's mm-hmm. he's playing Gun a little bit. Okay. I like that very mm-hmm. much. But there's something in the tone of the message. That makes me wonder if we are supposed to think that this is being left for a gun, or we are supposed to think that this is left for the only other person Angel ever calls on the phone. Buffy. Buffy.
1: Right. I thought it was Buffy when I first watched it. I
2: think we're cued to yeah. believe that it's mm-hmm. Buffy. I think we're supposed to to draw that connection. And if we are, I really like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I really like that, that subtle connection between these two worlds. It's not a misdirection Mm -hmm. that bothers me at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it brings Buffy to mind in a way that particularly when you're watching this in this form, when you're watching all three episodes back to back to back, it brings Buffy to mind and it keeps her present in Mm -hmm. a way that is powerfully leveraged when we get to the very end of the
0: yeah,
1: especially because we do have this kind of underlying subtext of a deeper feeling between Angel and Cordelia. It's one of the things that we were talking about that they've been sort of <laughs> leading into. And we had a few people who had argued with us on the forums, on Twitter and and all around, uh, saying that absolutely not. This isn't the beginning of the Angel and Cordelia, kind of like this is the beginning of a a romantic pull between them. But I absolutely see that in the subtext. It's
2: not the beginning. (laughs) <laughs> i mean we've gone to this well a couple of times we opened with this well series.
1: hello salty goodness is the first thing that cordy <laughs> says when she sees angel in season one of buffy um she kind of had a thing for him yeah. back then so i think that we've always kind of danced around this but now i feel like it is it is kind of rising up in the subtext and for me his desperation to go get cordy is about you know it being cordy who is his good well, friend okay. for all these years but i also feel like there's obviously more there
2: i think there's a way of reading it that removes the romantic element Mm -hmm. but i don't think that that's the intention of the writers i think you can read it as angel seeking atonement Mm -hmm. that he still has to make up for the way that he's treated cordelia that he is in some way in part responsible for all of this for Mm. her debilitating visions for her getting caught up in the the L.A. demon underworld in the first place. Mm -hmm. I think he has an obligation there. Clearly, theirs is a very intimate and personal relationship. It doesn't necessarily for that have to be a romance. Mm -hmm. They really can be just friends. But also, tangentially, the show super wants us to think that there's a romance. But but we
1: are, you know, we are dropping those cues. And we hit
2: that as hard as we possibly can with the final showdown between Angel and the Gruuselug much later in the story. That is, I mean... 100% 100% textual.
1: I, I think it really is. When people, I was like, am I insane? Am no, I just seeing something we've that's not there? we been circling back and forth. But I'm pretty forth. sure I've been seeing that pretty clearly.
2: I do think there's a question mark hanging over how much the writers mean it. Certainly uh, right. they it going it? to stick? But is it right. going to stick? The same think,
1: way we had all that Xander and Buffy yes. stuff in seasons two and three, where we had these moments that and seemed even like it was going sure. to happen. Um, and then it never
0: did. But we've yeah. been
2: doing this with Angel and Cordelia... I guess the first is Room with a View, mm-hmm. when Angel ends up yeah. taking Cordelia in, offering her a place to stay. We have the whole peanut butter in the bed yes. scene. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a tension mm-hmm. there. There's a chemistry there, which I think is one of the reasons that Cordelia is part of the cast here in Absolutely. Angel. There's a chemistry mm-hmm. between Charisma Carpenter and David Boreanaz that you would be a fool not to mm-hmm. not to leverage for your show. I like it. Mm-hmm. I don't ship. Yeah. Cordelia and Angel at all. Mm-hmm. I would be perfectly happy for them not to be romantically connected, but I definitely read it in the text of these episodes.
1: I am almost always a shipper. Like it doesn't matter what the relationship is. I will <laughs> ship it. This is the only one I have never shipped because I love the platonic relationship between I, I them so much. Yeah. So I've never really been pulling for these two to get together. Um, And, uh, and so at, at this moment though, it seems so very, very clear that they are starting to kind of like lay the groundwork for a romantic line here. And I think we do get into text by the end of this three um, episode arc. So back to Pylea. In a barn, Cordy is raking manure when she meets a strange human girl with an electronic collar around her neck, too. She is also a slave. The girl doesn't seem terribly connected with reality, but she manages to warn Cordy not to take her collar off or her head will explode. The girl is apprehended and dragged away. Later, in the town marketplace cordy asks her owner about the girl and then has a vision she sees a draken attacking one of the local villagers and is accused of being cursed
2: this is our first introduction to fred our yeah. first real introduction to fred i guess we'll talk more about her in her later scenes mm-hmm. with angel which is when we begin to explore her character yeah but for me right off the bat she works i find her enormously engaging god enormously charming yeah It's a really difficult role, Mm -hmm. I think. And it's an archetype that Whedon has played with before. Mm -hmm. I think that Fred might be my favorite of these. Classically Widonian characters, but I yes. think we'll talk about that a little at the end, too. A little, have more, a little in more detail material. when we yeah.
1: have more of her to talk about. In Angel's car, Angel, Wesley, and Lorne prepare to move through the hot spot together. When Gunn hops in, the band is back together. They <laughs> I head... rescind
2: my earlier statement, right. <laughs> clearly.
1: <laughs> they head through the portal and land in Pylea in the broad daylight of two suns that somehow don't kill Angel. They cover up the car and head into town looking for Cordy.
2: So this is our first real tonal deviation Mm -hmm. because we've got Goofy Angel. Yes. And Goofy Angel is a welcome addition to pretty much any story. (laughs) He is spectacularly charming
1: yeah no when he's happy and excited about something especially when it's about something simple it's so fun to see David Boreanaz just play that yeah. up he can brood we know he can brood he broods a lot he's,
2: he's brooding at a world class exactly. level at a, at an Olympic level
1: exactly but when he has these moments to be almost have an almost childlike enthusiasm mm-hmm. about things um, I love it I love it when he's out there and he's like hey dig the sun that's not killing me <laughs> You know, um, it's it's really kind of fun. And here we have not one, but two sons. Both of them aren't killing him. So the rules of this world are just different. I also like that we get this cue right from the beginning that the rules of this world are different.
2: Yes. And You're that
1: it has consequences.
2: Waiting, though, for the car to be significant in some way, aren't you? You're yeah. waiting for. I mean, they it go to all like the trouble. It the DeLorean
1: of, and Back to the Future. That is exactly the reference I was going to pull.
2: <laughs> You're just waiting for. We have to get the angel mobile up to 88 miles an hour. 1.2 1.21 Gigawatts, 1.21 gigawatts. But, Gigawatt. you know, they measure things differently on pilot. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's fine. It's just a conversion <laughs> problem. It's, it's not a problem at all, really. <laughs> I don't know why we have to have the car. I don't know why we have to have the car.
1: Well, uh, because they needed to have a reason why Landoc and Cordelia, when they went through the portal together, didn't land in the same place together. So now we have the car so that the car encases them in metal. Really,
2: a single line of dialogue would have taken care of it. Landoc and Cordelia traveled through separately i yeah. mean they traveled through separately
0: uh-huh.
2: we can only assume yes <laughs> if they had held hands mm-hmm. it would have accomplished everything that the engine mobile accomplishes yes but instead we're, we're, we want to fill time i love the use of the car though mm-hmm. it's not put to any narrative use yeah. but, but it's physical use in the scenes particularly the scene at the end when it smashes back into oh, caritas sure. yeah. is weirdly cool i think mm-hmm. that's a really good visual effect so i'm happy that we're doing it doesn't really count for it doesn't much. Doesn't have a narrative weight. But we it's also okay. remove the book
0: mm-hmm. for no
2: real reason. Right. We could have just—we've already established that the hotspots mm-hmm. are what's important. Yeah. So we could have taken the book. We could have added another layer to it. It would have been fine. But yeah. we remove the book, and I'm—I'm I'm interested in the idea that because something exists to open a portal to a world. It therefore would serve no purpose and therefore cannot travel through the portal. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, no, that is really interesting. That would interesting. have been fascinating yeah. if, if they tried to drive through the portal and Lauren had been left mm-hmm. on the sidewalk. Yes. Just, I serve <laughs> no purpose there. <laughs> Fair. Fair interpretation, I think.
1: (laughs) Cordy is taken to the castle where red-robed demon priests confirm her vision and prepare to conduct tests to determine whether Cordy is indeed cursed. They confirm that as well. Angel, Wesley, Lorne, and Gunn don't have much more luck. They are spotted in town. They put up a fight but are eventually tied up and put in a cell. Angel's vampire hearing hasn't been affected by this new world and he hears the guards talking about a girl with visions.
2: I thought the fight scene in the village mm-hmm. was really interesting because this is the first of a handful of moments yeah. when I think the show wears its self-awareness mm-hmm. on its sleeve. Yeah. Because we've talked before about a couple of instances where our intrepid investigators have faced overwhelming odds. A hundred and have
1: vampires exactly in the theater with Harmony. taken yes. on a
2: small army mm-hmm. all by themselves and it feels as though we're referencing that, right. doesn't it? Yeah. It feels as though we're deliberately playing with the silliness, mm-hmm. with the the ridiculousness mm-hmm. of that idea, particularly when we have, I think we're winning, <laughs> hard cut to capture. <laughs> it's genuinely yes. funny, and I love mm-hmm. the show demonstrating that degree of self-awareness. There are two other parts in mm-hmm. the episode where I'll just call yes. that out specifically. Mm-hmm. But it, it's a really interesting question for me. How much is the heightened, as you said, hyperbolic tone of Pylea reflective of the somber but hyperbolic tone of the rest of the season of Angel? Are they aware that they've gone too far? Are they aware that they've, they've raised the stakes too high? So that a hundred vampires in a theater with Harmony are now no trouble at all? Right. <laughs> it feels as though they have, right? It you feels as though they're You have to reset their
1: capability down to something that isn't so incredibly
2: overpowered. And to do so not just by recognizing yeah. that hyperbolic tendency, but by making fun of that
1: hyperbolic <laughs> tendency?
2: Well, gosh, that is my favorite thing.
1: It is kind of fun. Yeah. Angel realizes that the girl they're talking about is Cordy, and they have to escape and rescue her. Before they can, though, they are taken to the monarch to be sentenced they're just about to fight to get loose from their captors when they are brought into a room to have judgment passed and there's cordy sitting on the throne wearing a gold coin bikini
2: let's put a pin in the bikini okay I that want might to be uncomfortable
1: note... for cordy but you
0: know whatever
2: <laughs> no more uncomfortable than the, <laughs> bikini, the bikini already bikini is itself. i'm sure <laughs> On Pylea, everyone wears, you know, layers. Sure, sure. There's a lot of robes. There are a lot of cloaks. There's a lot of fur. A lot of
1: hoods. Cordelia right?
2: just hanging out in a bikini. That's fine. Go. No. It's depressing, but yeah. it, but it's fine. We'll talk about that. And in, they just in happen
1: in to have one that fits her perfectly two made out of gold coins. Out. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> this scene in the dungeon, mm-hmm. as Angel is listening in on the discussion that the guards are having outside the door,
1: mm-hmm.
2: there is no narrative purpose to that scene at all hmm They are about to be taken to Cordelia. Right. Nothing changes but because of the existence Cordelia. of that scene. And they've there already no...
1: stated the goal that they yep. have to get to Cordelia. It wasn't like they're like, well, we were thinking about not rescuing her, but now that she's had a vision, you know.
2: Narrative beats, which we talk about all the time Mm -hmm. here on Dusted and in our other podcasts, are somewhat tricky to pin down. The beat is the atomic unit of narrative. Mm -hmm. It is the smallest unit of storytelling. And it is a moment of conflict. Two forces clash, two goals cross one person wins, one person loses, we move on to the next mm-hmm. point of conflict, the next beat in the story. Beats are combined into scenes, scenes are combined into movements or arcs or mm-hmm. chapters, those are combined into acts, and acts are combined into stories. But the beat is atomic.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's also predicated upon that conflict. There is no conflict in that scene. Mm-hmm. No one is saying, no, we should not go and rescue Cordelia. No
1: added conflict they were already in jail. They already need to get out of jail to rescue Cordy. Yeah. So having this understanding that there's a girl with visions and you know and they've been testing her or whatever, we already know that. We don't need that exposition because the viewer already knows that. And, and Angel doesn't need to know that. It doesn't fundamentally change exactly. the circumstance that he's in having that knowledge.
2: We already know. Mm-hmm. They don't need to know because they're about to be taken to Cordelia. Anyway, anyway.
1: right. <laughs> mm-hmm. It
2: doesn't accomplish anything is it fair to say do you think that the Pylea arc is two episodes worth of narrative in a three episode bag
1: yeah i think maybe Mm -hmm. it
2: certainly feels that way we talked about burning time in los angeles which Mm -hmm. is certainly the most egregious and i think that the first episode of the three is the worst offender yes in this Mm -hmm. regard but we are definitely going to burn a little extra time in each episode. There's a good 10 minutes that you can trim out of both subsequent. We moments. Yeah. So this takes us to our first cliffhanger.
1: Yeah, our first inverted expectation. Well,
2: sure, not mm-hmm. necessarily the first. I suppose the first may be the dog demon in the forest. Oh, the
1: dog demon. Yeah, sure. That's mm-hmm. a
2: pretty classic example. Yeah. I'm trying to think of others. I mean, there's a lot of that kind of subversion of expectations mm-hmm. baked into the premise of Pylea. Yeah. Human beings as not just a, a subclass not mm-hmm. just a slave class but being referred to as cows mm-hmm. that never felt right to me throughout the entire three episode arc no i don't know why why cows even would be would be the replacement term
1: well, it's a replacement term for human, but cow, I mean, as as we are familiar with it, and let's, you know, they're, they're speaking English, so mm-hmm. there's some crossover there. So a cow is a female animal. I mean, it's a female part of the species. It's a cow and a bull, and that's how they're referred to. So it's strange because all of them are cows, even the men, and how yeah. do they see them as... Farm animals.
2: Well, I see the the dehumanizing, the literally dehumanizing yeah. application of the term. And I think that if it were cattle or uh-huh. something more generally representative, sure. I think that it would work. But cow feels oddly benign mm-hmm. and, and very, very specific in a very weird way. Yeah. Because we think of cows as being... Dairy animals, mm-hmm. generally speaking, and that's not an applicable metaphor. Please tell me that's not an applicable <laughs> metaphor for the way that humans are treated in Pylea. I don't get it. Every time someone says cow yeah,
0: in the entire arc, weird.
2: I, I'm just left a little cold by it. Mm-hmm. So we have Cordelia. We have her in her little metal bikini. We subvert expectations as we move into the second episode episode. And now would be, I think, as good a time as any to ask an important question. Who is this woman and what has she done with Cordelia Chase?
1: This is a kind of a new incarnation of Cordelia. Mm -hmm. Um, She doesn't really have the teeth that our our previous incarnations of Cordelia have had. Um, She is much more simple. Um, she's, she doesn't recognize, like, the wider consequences of what's going on. It becomes all about her being a princess. I don't really recognize Cordy in this space. Had she been in that position, I would think that she would be much more suspicious of her position in this social hierarchy here, you know? Right,
2: because the Cordelia that comes from angel the Noir story yeah. or the at least noir inflected story would be much more suspicious would know of better. this this fortunate yeah. happenstance she's not great through the bulk of mm-hmm. the episode and there are some concessions here to narrative convention mm-hmm. suddenly Cordelia talks to herself suddenly. that's mm-hmm. cool we just need her to offer that exposition right that's fine I guess I don't think it would have killed the show to make her More capable. Mm -hmm. It would have been nice if she had actually been able to gather information and even move toward some kind of escape plan.
1: Right, but because Cordy is smarter, our Cordy is smarter (laughs) than this Cordy. This is a very flattened. She is one of the characters who unfortunately got flattened when she traveled through the portal.
2: She certainly did, though. She's by no means the only one, as previously mentioned. I think Gun suffers badly from the transition to Pylea. He is turned back into the gun that we met back in Warzone, yeah. where every line of dialogue is an opportunity for a quip, is mm-hmm. an opportunity for a reference. He's being terribly overwritten, mm-hmm. and that's consistent throughout the entire Pylea arc. So it's not the case that Mayor Smith can't write for gun or Tim right. Minear can't write for gun. Mm-hmm. This is just a different version of gun, a little turned up, a little a little too much. Mm-hmm. Wesley benefits from the transition Mm -hmm. through the portal there. I think that he comes out just beautifully Mm -hmm. in in Pylea, and this is going to stick. This is a part of the ongoing evolution of of Wesley's character. Lorne is drawn in such simple and stark colors compared Mm -hmm. to the way that he's depicted on Earth, the way that he's been depicted all season. This character, who we have praised for his empathy, for his capacity, for wisdom, is now suddenly comic relief. Yeah, And that's really disappointing. That is such a missed opportunity. But of all the characters, Cordelia suffers by far the worst. Is this, do you think, an inevitable consequence of putting Cordelia into the role of the protagonist? Is this a consequence of her having to carry the story? I
1: think part of it is a consequence of we have like you said you know two pounds of story in a three pound bag and not everybody has a narrative purpose Lauren basically just sits there dragging his feet because they don't have any narrative for him really to carry we don't get anything really for Cordelia until we get to the choice that she has to make you know if she has the calm chuck with the gruselug she loses her (laughs) visions and I think that that is a recognizable Cordelia that we don't see for most of this arc for the rest of it she is simply you know She's carrying the princess jokes and that's what she does. Um, So I think part of it is a consequence of that. I think that on occasion we do know how to write, you know, Cordy as a protagonist. Disharmony, I thought that she was really well written in that episode. That's a perfect
2: example. Yeah, Mm -hmm. we have written really strong Cordelia chases through the two years now that we've spent with Angel but not consistently
1: and for the most part I think that Cordy is underserved by what's going on during the split when Angel was you know going crazy over Darla and Cordy and Wesley and Gunn were running the investigators on their mm-hmm. own I think we got a really strong we got a really capable Cordy I really liked her there and then we yeah. brought her back into this space and somehow she's being relegated down to um, to kind of being the heart of the sure. group the emotional connection and we're missing some of the great things that make Cordelia who Cordelia is and we're sort of trading her in for a a much flatter more stereotyped kind of character
2: I think that's a really that's a really strong insight because she is you're right being rendered as a token of herself. She, mm-hmm. She's now representative of a Cordelia rather than Cordelia right. herself. Mm-hmm. As we said, you know, it's only been a couple of weeks since we talked about disharmony. Yeah. She's pretty great in disharmony. Mm-hmm. That That's a good, strong characterization for her. She can be Amazing. She mm-hmm. has been consistently one of our favorite characters ever since the first season of Buffy, but we're obviously struggling mm-hmm. to figure out what to do with her. And we've been struggling since City of, since the yeah. pilot episode of Angel itself. We have, you know, we've talked about Angel being reformatted multiple times as yeah. we move through the arc. We have the Doyle years, then we have the post Doyle years, mm-hmm. then we have the very end of season one, beginning of season two, where we're suddenly very powerfully noir yeah, We have a sense
1: of purpose and direction. Absolutely have a yes. sense of
2: purpose. Mm-hmm. Then we get derailed by the Darla storyline. Mm-hmm. This, in a weird way, feels like the fifth incarnation of Angel, the series.
1: It does. The Pylea arc, in and of itself, feels like its own incarnation. And then sure. when we come back in season three, we come back with purpose. And I think that Angel pretty much knows itself as a show well, from that, that point forward.
2: Angel, as a show, knows itself during the Pylea arc. It's just right. not doing something that could mm-hmm. be sustained over the course of an entire series it would lose a certain amount of its identity yeah
1: it's at the beginning of this new understanding of angel that it suddenly takes this fantasy space where everything it's a bizarro world without the regular world or or an understanding of our new status quo to compare it
2: to it's like and this is perhaps an unexpected simile (laughs) It's like the difference between something like Quantum Leap, Mm -hmm. which is anchored in reality, even though it has this fantastical concept, and something like Sliders, Mm -hmm. where we're moving from dimension to dimension without that anchoring Without any grounding. Sure. Mm -hmm. I like the Pylea arc for what it is. I think it's a lot of fun. It certainly has a sense of itself that has been lacking in previous incarnations of Angel. But if this is the fifth version of Angel that we've had to date, this has to be the 10th 15th version of Cordelia Mm -hmm. we tried her romantically with Doyle then not then yes again actually Mm -hmm. then romantically with Wesley but not really sometimes with Angel but not really there's a flicker of something with Mm Gunn we've made her the secretary we've made her the heart we've made her the leader then we made her the heart again yeah we're still struggling to find that solution and this is not one of the better versions of Cordelia, unfortunately.
1: No, and it's, it's really unfortunate Rendered because there very... are some things in the Pilea arc that I love so much, but Cordy, unfortunately, is not one of them. She's
2: the worst thing in the Pilea arc, right? I think so, yeah. yeah okay, yeah. let's move into Through the Looking Glass, the second chapter then where we pick up off that cliffhanger and the reveal of Cordelia's Metal bikini.
1: All right. We pick up where we left off in the throne room, and it turns out there's a prophecy about a cursed one with visions, and now these people have made Cordy their princess. The guys are focused on how to get what they need, books and a new hotspot to get back to L.A. But Cordy's not so anxious to leave the world where she's a princess. (laughs) I hate that. I hate that I too. Hate, I hate that too. I hate when she's when she's all resentful. And I and I mean, I understand that's where this particular joke is and I understand that you know it it gives a little bit injects a little bit of conflict into a scene, but it's I something... hate that she is so like immediately like, yes, I'm a princess and I run this land yes. and that's and this is my new home. I mean, what is that? It's
2: been five minutes. Yeah, It if may have been, been as much as for ten.
1: a couple of months. Sure. If she had gotten used to it, if she'd learned to like like these people and, had been, you know, then I would understand it a little bit more.
0: Right. But Not everything happens on this bit.
2: incredibly yeah. brief timescale. She's
0: barely I been there. I do yeah.
2: love the fact that she's the princess. Yeah. Mm hmm. There appears to be no king or queen Mm -hmm. in this kingdom. I guess we talk about Pylea like it's an actually defined place. Is Pylea the village? Is Mm -hmm. it this country? Is there a country? Is it the Republic
1: of Pylea?
2: Is it this continent? Is it this world? Is it this dimension? Yeah. I have no idea of the scale that we're mm-hmm. dealing with. I believe, from, from context clues, that Pylea is the
1: world. Is the dimension, the way that Earth is our world.
2: Well, no, that, that yes, Earth mm-hmm. is our planet mm-hmm. inside of a larger, inside of our dimension. Right. I think that Pylea is the name of the planet mm-hmm. inside, inside its a larger dimension. dimension mm-hmm. But I don't know. But I kind of love that. I love the fact that she's the princess. Mm-hmm. Because this is a fairy tale. Of right. course she should be the princess. What else is, is she be? This is a tropey be? fantasy story. Mm-hmm. Of course she should be the princess. To be the queen would be a very different thing. Mm-hmm. That is a very different kind of symbol. Right. The princess gets the power but doesn't have the responsibility. Mm -hmm. And that's perfect for Cordelia. Well, there's
1: a natural innocence to princess, that there isn't to
2: queen. And a natural, I think, uh, desirability, Mm -hmm. too. There's a reason that Disney princesses are role models and Disney queens are Are not. That's because most of them are dead. And the ones that aren't dead are evil, as you say. (laughs) But there's something aspirational about the princess Mm -hmm. idea. So while... It does render Pylea a completely unbelievable society. I, I cannot get a sense of how this right. entire world, honestly, from from the cosmological to the completely mundane. Exactly. I don't understand how how vampires work here. What kind really of
1: structure of government? Is I don't this? understand
2: how the economy works here. <laughs> right. Really, I don't understand. Well, apparently, a thing.
1: all the money is in Cordy's bikini. Sure, so there you go.
2: <laughs> but it doesn't really matter mm-hmm. because it's rendered in these fairy tale terms. It is, and by rendering it in fairy tale terms, the show displays. An understanding of its own premise, Mm -hmm. which kind of forgives and excuses all of that world-building nonsense that would otherwise, as listeners to Dust did know, would otherwise trip me up Mm -hmm. and prevent me from engaging emotionally with the world. Pylea just is not a real place
1: it's a fairy tale dimension yeah mm-hmm. and
2: i'm kind of okay with that and there you go
1: <laughs> lauren and angel leave to talk to lauren's family to get information about a new hotspot and cordy takes gun and wesley straight to the books meanwhile the red robed d- demon priests are discussing cordy's imminent death either during the foretold calm Shuck or after but not
2: before. I want to print you a t-shirt that says, I would come shuck the gruselug.
1: <laughs> there would be five people
2: in the world who would recognize it as you walk down the street.
1: But when you met them, you would be like, yes.
0: Yes, you, know, you are my people. Exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Lauren's family isn't happy to see him, but Landoc welcomes Angel as a warrior and invites him as a guest of honor to the village feast.
2: This is inessential. Yeah. It is actually quite well written, yeah, the jokey reveal about mm-hmm. lauren 's mother, I think is genuinely funny, yeah, I love the way the dialogue is written throughout, but Tim Miner, yeah. I think, mm-hmm. handles the comedy
0: mm-hmm.
2: ever so slightly better than than either Mayor Smith or David Greenwald. Yeah. I think he has a better grasp of uh, it 's almost a better agility he 's mm-hmm. better able to move fluidly from the more comedic and outrageous to the more mm-hmm. conventional. This scene is inessential, but I can't help but like it. And I do like the recognition of Angel as a great warrior. That's actually a strong moment for me.
1: Well, because everything in this world for Angel is bizarre, mm-hmm. you know, and I actually really like it for Angel because of where we go with this. If it was just, hey, Angel gets to be a warrior. Angel gets to be a hero. Angel gets to shed all of the guilt and everything that he's been brooding about because he's on a world where he has not yet yeah. brutally murdered anyone. Um I, I, it's neat to have that kind of um, that kind of inversion for him, but I really right. like because of the there is a consequence to that as well. That there are the, the bad things are worse. You know when we yes. get there, mm-hmm.
2: you're right. The metaphor of that is yeah. played beautifully and is again really just a fairy tale construct. Yes, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of lovely the way that that's represented throughout the entire arc of the three part story. I like Landok mm-hmm. here. I like I like to the humanity, the vulnerability that this gives Lauren, because Lauren just hating the place where he comes from because there's no music and everyone is sad and it's a place of black. Exactly, Mm -hmm. right? It's petulant. Yeah. And it makes me like Lauren less. But I think we've all had that moment Mm -hmm. where we've taken a friend home to meet our parents you know Mm -hmm. a girlfriend a boyfriend just a friend Mm -hmm. we've taken that person home we've hung out as a family with our parents with our family and you get that sense that maybe your parents like your friend a little more than they like (laughs) you (laughs) like oh sure he's the golden boy he can do no wrong sure i think we've all had that and this Mm -hmm. genuinely gives lauren Something specific to push back against.
0: Yeah.
2: I like that. So mm-hmm. while it is completely inessential and while were I editing the script, I would have no choice but to remove it. Yeah. It's fun. It's good. Yeah. It's strong. It's well written. And it's beautifully shot. And we absolutely have to talk about numfar.
1: Oh, I guess that we do. Numfar, played by Joss Whedon. Played by in... one
2: Joe Wedon? Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of his work as an actor. <laughs> right. uh, I did look briefly on IMDb. Really just a few appearances yeah. <laughs> in things. Um, Joss Whedon wanted this to be a surprise. I was reading an interview with, with Andy Hallett that mm-hmm. was taken in, I think, 2005 mm-hmm. regarding this incident. Joss Whedon thought this would be hilarious, but he wanted it to be a surprise. So he went off and had a special makeup trailer put together mm-hmm. so that he could have his makeup done privately. And if you go and read the stories about the makeup job required for this episode, a team of 14 makeup artists starting at 2.30 in the morning so that they could shoot all of these Lauren style extras, Mm -hmm. all of these Lauren style makeup jobs. It's stunning to even think about. So Joss Whedon had his makeup done separately, walked out onto the set, and was, of course, immediately recognized by every single person. The makeup stood up to no scrutiny whatsoever. Everyone knew it was Joss. Except for Andy Hallett. (laughs) Who sees Joss Whedon careening about and thinks, who is that idiot? Yeah. <laughs> I think the word that he uh, the word that he used in the interview was trash. Yes, he thought that this guy was just <laughs> trash, and then of course it was shamefaced to discover that yes, it that's was his Sweden. boss.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. it's
2: genuinely hilarious. Mm-hmm. It's genuinely uh, a hilarious scene. The conceit, the way that we fold in the conceit, mm-hmm. is so strong it goes on for so long and then you're finally relieved that it's over and then we immediately replace it with, with the, the dance of, of honor.
0: Yes. <laughs> it's so good.
2: It's such it a is. dumb idea but it we commit is. to it 100% and well, I admire the that. the thing
1: that I really like is Angel being celebrated as a warrior. I, I love that element of this sure. and I think that that actually does have narrative justification throughout the entire episode, um, the entire arc, really. I think so too. Um, But yeah, but it's, it's, it's a little bit much it's a little bit ridiculous i did not recognize uh numfar for joss whedon either well, in the beginning even I think if you're it's watching this
2: on dvd harder for
1: us to do that <laughs> yeah. you know because he is out of focus in the background it is very very much an inside joke um but uh, but yeah i always found the the numfar stuff to be just
2: unbelievably stupid <laughs> See, that seems like the kind of thing that you would hate
1: yes it is
2: but you don't hate it completely? Is that what I'm getting from you?
1: No, I always thought it was kind of stupid. I appreciate it because it's Joss Whedon, so I appreciate it a little bit more now with that knowledge, but it, the, the whole numfar dance of shame, dance I of think honor, yeah.
2: if they hadn't committed to it as fully as they did, they it did would not commit. have worked. You
1: gotta give them that, yeah. I
2: think there, there's victory here in excess, and I will dance a dance of victory in excess.
1: Okay, I will absolutely <laughs> hold you to that. In the castle library, Wesley pours through the books and finds mention of a ritual the Kamschuk, that the princess is to perform with the Gruselug. No one knows what that is. More importantly, the three volumes have a wolf, a ram, and a heart on the covers. Wesley is pretty sure the priests can't be trusted. They need to get out of there now.
2: I love the wolf-ram-heart reveal. Sure. It is completely inessential. If they had anything to, rest to of do,
1: this yes, exactly. I-,
2: I mean, I like it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter yeah. here at all. I love, though the gruselug Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that i am the huge and abiding fan that i am of the works of J.R.R. tolkien Mm -hmm. is that tolkien had an ear for the english language unlike any other writer in history i love his made-up words Mm -hmm. he makes them up with an attention and a care you know what these words mean more often than not just because of the sound oh, that uruk-hai. they make, Urukai. Yeah, I mean that my is my favorite. Yeah. Is there is a frozen realm of of clashing ice sheets and glaciers mm-hmm. in the far north of Arda that Tolkien called the Helcaraxxa, uh. which is the best. That is the single best made up word in fantasy fiction ever. Right. The Helcaraxxa mm-hmm. is fantastic. Gruesalug. It's not far behind.
1: No, it's an incredibly evocative set of phonemes. It, it is. really is. The way that they fit together, it gives you this just gross sense of. I mean, it, it honestly is gross slug. Yes. You know,
2: <laughs> <laughs> it works mm-hmm. for me. Comshuck, nothing like as well. Comshuck doesn't doesn't yeah. represent anything to me. But mm-hmm. that's. Kind of okay within the fiction because it is supposed to be more oblique. We're not supposed to get a sense of what that is. Right. We are supposed to get a sense of what the Gruselug is. Or,
1: yeah, just by the word itself. Sure. <laughs> uh, have a, a sense of revulsion on Cordy's behalf. Cordy doesn't want to go. She likes being a princess. But when Silas the priest explains that this is a mating ritual with the Gruselug, who has recently been summoned from the scum pits of ore... Cordy signs on to the escape plan. She gathers up as much treasure as she can and watches as Gunn and Wesley escape through the sewers. But before she can go, the priests find her, tell her the Gruselug is waiting, and take her back to the throne room.
2: A perfect storm of flat Cordelia and wasted time. Yeah, We do not need this. And how much more heroic would it have been? For her to get Gunn and Wesley out of the castle and stay behind voluntarily.
1: Yeah. Uh. Right now, here she is with all of these little treasures that... Who cares? I mean, mm-hmm. even Cordelia...
2: Who cares? Well, there's also the sense that her outfit would probably be worth more than that anyway. I
1: imagine, yeah, that she's walking Even around with After going quite through the sewer bit. pipes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so um this moment where she's gathering up all that stuff is it it belittles Cordelia and yeah. who she is. And if she said, No, you guys go, I will stay behind because somebody's coming and then I'll follow you, you know, that would have been a heroic moment for mm-hmm. her, you know? Um, and I like I would have liked that so much more, but yet we go to this incredible. Incredibly flat, non Cordelia. You know, yeah. I mean, even even Cordelia from high school. I don't think would have been like that about you know Silver. Right. Yeah. I,
2: I completely agree. I think it's it's a really poor moment. It's actually the nadir for mm-hmm. me in the yeah, entire no, episode. Yeah, this is the
1: worst moment yeah. for me. I, I really really hate that.
2: But. Wesley's great.
1: Wesley is always great. I love Wesley. At the village feast, Angel tells tales of his heroics and the town loves him. Okay,
2: this is the second moment of outright self-awareness. Angel tells the story of that time he chopped off the hand of the lawyer beast, (laughs) which I really like. And then Landok comes over and says, Angel, you must tell again the tale of the sorcerer who could remove his limbs and reassemble them at will. To which Lorne replies, right, right, because that's a good one.
1: Because that was a terrible episode, and I think
2: everybody knew it. <laughs> is this the show commenting on its own past failures? I
1: think it is. And, and with a good of sense <laughs> of humor, absolutely. <laughs> no, it's kind of nice. I just
2: wish that, that Landau could come over and said, Angel, you must tell again the story of the woman who cried at her father's retirement party. Oh, no, no,
1: no, no, no. Never speak of that again, Angel. <laughs> Never speak of it again. Angel is then given the honor of swinging the crebble, which means taking the head off a cow, the girl Cordy spoke to earlier. Instead, Angel saves her, fighting off the bloodthirsty crowd. Angel escapes with the girl, and Lorne is captured. The girl takes Angel to her cave, where Angel realizes, from the writing on the walls and seeing her driver's license, that this is (laughs) Winifred Burkle, the girl who disappeared from the Los Angeles Public Library Five years ago, you're
2: right. The only clue that he needed was seeing her name written down. Yes, <laughs> that—that's it. That tipped him off. He's we a can good now detective. Talk about Fred oh, fully,
1: Fred.
2: This is magnificent.
1: She is amazing. And capable. She was the one. They talked about how she had disabled the collar so that it wouldn't blow her head off. Um, She's so incredibly smart. She's so incredibly capable. And she keeps going back into this world because she is determined to open a portal so that she can get home, Mm -hmm. which I love.
2: There has been a discussion about the popular response to Fred and whether or not we are immediately charmed by her or whether we find her a little much, is there a danger for you of her turning into a caricature? Do you find her close to the line?
1: I don't. Um, I think because of the way that she's written throughout this episode, we do have moments where she has something of a Manic Pixie Dream Girl-esque vibe to her. Mm-hmm. Um, But I think that Fred has so much capability. She has so much motive force that she brings to the story that even with that vibe, I think that she works really, really well.
2: It's a vibe, it's it's a, a, an archetype mm-hmm. that would have been more novel to us in 2001 than it would be today, particularly mm-hmm. if we are fans of Whedon's entire body of work because, as I mentioned, this is an archetype that he is obviously very fond of indeed. Fred, River Tam, mm-hmm. Echo from yes. Dollhouse, they all share this... This, you know, damaged brunette archetype. The There's troubled waif. Mm-hmm. Broken within them. And yet there is a goodness coupled with a quirkiness. Yeah. You know, these are the barefoot brunettes mm-hmm. <laughs> of, of Whedon's universes. And I think that you can extend it past just River and Echo. I think that they are the closest cousins mm-hmm. to, to this version of Fred. But we can also talk about. Faith, mm-hmm. and we can talk about Drusilla, mm-hmm. and we can talk about even Tara. I think to, to a, a certain extent,
1: sure. Yeah. I think has some shared Wanda DNA Maximoff right? Wanda Maximoff in the Avengers is a yeah. great example
2: mm-hmm. of exactly this character archetype, though again, a slightly more sophisticated, yes. slightly more mature mm-hmm. version of of this archetype. And
1: just because it's an archetype doesn't mean that it's bad. No. Uh, sometimes people will you know confuse like the idea of an archetype and the idea of a stereotype. And an archetype exists because of. Um, the role that they play in the narrative and what sure. they do in the narrative whereas a stereotype is about you know a particular kind of external characteristic that defines everything we know about that character
2: exactly right mm-hmm. these characters would be the same even if they didn't look the right same. they, they happen, happen, to happen to all be the,
1: the the barefoot wafy brunette but but the role that they play is is kind of this this troubled waif this this yes. young girl with immense power who has a lot of damage that she carries with her yeah. as well
2: they Kind of play the anti-Buffy. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, Buffy, exactly. Buffy too
2: is possessed of that enormous power, but she isn't troubled in the same she way. She doesn't at least have not that kind of the serious damage. Arc. Yeah. What do you think of that archetype as a recurring motif in Whedon's works? Do you think it's a, a strength of his work? Do you mm-hmm. think it's a weakness in his work? Do you find it troublesome that he goes so often to these incredibly vulnerable, almost damseled
0: mm-hmm.
2: young women.
1: I don't think they're damseled though because they're always powerful. They're always incredibly powerful mm-hmm. and I think that that's what saves that archetype is that it's not just that they are these damaged little waifs that must be um, protected, that must be rescued by someone more powerful than themselves. So Often they are the ones with the power that is beyond their capability always to wield it.
2: That's true which, though I, they are... Which is are what I kind of like. Most often... Protected, They are most often paired with an attentive masculine mm-hmm. presence who does Who watches
1: over them and protects them to a certain Because they yeah.
2: cannot fundamentally, completely protect themselves. I'm thinking less of Fred in this regard uh-huh. and more of Rivertown. Rivertown. Certainly Tam more of Echo. Of Echo, sure. Echo, who mm-hmm. is certainly a development of this archetype, but Echo is a cipher mm-hmm. for that. She is watched and protected, almost nurtured, almost coddled Mm -hmm. by a masculine presence. The same obviously is true of River. Mm -hmm. That doesn't take anything away from her power, but it certainly takes away from her agency. Her
1: agency. I find, though, that with Joss Whedon, what he does is he tends to arc these women out of that. He tends to arc them into strength. And Mm -hmm. although in the beginning they certainly are protected, and I think in the case of Echo, I believe... All, pretty much all the way through, right? She's well, of
2: course, both Dole and Firefly had had prematurely had premature, terminated runs. Yeah. So neither one of those shows neither really, one of those got really got to tell really the story. Neither one of those really got to, yeah. to
1: get to the point. But I mean, I think that what we see in Serenity is, you know, that River Tam really kind of comes into her own power. And I so I feel like that's the story that he's trying to tell. And I think it really is interesting. I don't find it troublesome because her soul... Um, existence isn't about being waifish and helpless so that some man can sure. save her. It is about her being in a position where she's not quite ready to understand and wield her power.
2: Right, but it's not just about an understanding of herself and her own power. Mm-hmm. It's also clearly about an understanding of the external world. Yeah. These characters are in part defined by their shocking naivete mm-hmm. they are unaccustomed to the world they yes. are ill prepared mm-hmm. for the world are we troubled at all by the way in which whedon seems to find virtue in that uniquely feminine innocence because we don't have to the best of my recollection any male characters in the expanded verse mm-hmm. that occupy that same kind of role the male version of this is the Xander, the mm-hmm. Topher, the Wash, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. the somewhat sardonic observer character mm-hmm. who defends themselves with wit and who actually knows, if anything, a little too much about the right. world around them.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is
2: there anything to the idea that this is a uniquely feminine archetype and that that is in itself problematic? Should we... Be mindful of that.
1: I don't think it is because we are returning to the story again about it is about this woman. She does not exist to define, you know, to be defined by the men around her. But rather that this is a story I think that Joss Whedon has shown Mm -hmm. some interest in, in in this character. And and, I mean, yes, these do end up being feminine characters, but they are very connected and defined by their own power. Mm -hmm. And because that is a story that is about them. I don't find it to be problematic. It doesn't bother me at all. And I actually really like the way that he addresses these stories in this, in this different way. I think it's an archetype that has a real value and it is one of the few, you know, innately feminine, archetypes which mm-hmm. is something that we don't see a lot. A lot of times these archetypes are about young men and the men who mentor them and and the the heroics and all of stories that. Stories about are, fathers and sons. That are yeah. typically relegated to to telling stories about men and this is telling stories about this particular kind of woman and the excess of vulnerability that that is in there I think is is really an interesting thing to arc these characters Out of so that they really do possess their own power. But because they don't simply exist to motivate or to reflect men back upon themselves. I don't find them problematic at all. I actually quite like them.
2: No, I completely agree. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to explore this because I do find it such an interesting. It is space. really interesting. Yeah. I think that opposition to these characters, particularly a, a flat, universal, somewhat you know superficial opposition mm-hmm. to these characters, too often misreads vulnerability for weakness. Yes, mm-hmm. and that is a problem. That is mm-hmm. a problem with the reading of fiction in in modern society. We need to be able to differentiate between those two things fred has enormous strength enormous weakness but also enormous vulnerability yes and those are not the same things there are points at which that venn diagram overlaps but Mm -hmm. they are it is not a single circle and that's that's wonderful that's a thing to be celebrated i do think that winifred burkle is as i said earlier the most successful version of those archetypes yeah we can talk about that obviously for for the rest of the Run of Angel. Minor we spoilers, I guess. Will. Fred's gonna stick around, you guys. Yes,
1: we will be talking <laughs> about Fred quite a bit.
2: But I'm I'm glad that we managed to to have this discussion and and talk about what is, if anything, I think the most the most unique identifier of Whedon's
0: work
1: yeah and one of the things that has happened in in recent years is that Whedon has taken a lot of flack for somehow uh, not being feminist enough um, in his work and and the first thing is is that Whedon never signed any kind of blood contract with anybody that all of his work would be like super feminist y'all he's telling stories about real people and that means that we can have female characters who are weak we can have female characters who are vulnerable the same way that we can have male characters who are weak and who are vulnerable that is part of a human experience yeah. and that's okay
2: as we've said before the accusation that Whedon is an imperfect feminist or that his works imperfectly represent feminist values is not the equivalent of saying that he is misogynistic
1: no absolutely not the equivalent but it is a, it is a thing that a lot of people who really love jumping on the outrage cycle will absolutely sure. jump on and I think it's been incredibly unfair it is not Joss Whedon's job to run out and carry the feminist flag well, for everybody
2: okay and I want to be very very clear about this it is not any Anyone's individual writer's job. job it is not we're not giving Whedon a pass because he's a man and therefore exempt from feminist discourse that is absolutely not the case he is Exactly as responsible for that feminist discourse as As any other writer contributing to the
1: culture. Absolutely. Um, But that is not his sole purpose. His purpose and the reason why we go to him and the reason why we need him is because he tells the stories that we need to tell. And sometimes that means that you will have a female character who is not entirely 100% Mm -hmm. ass-kicking. That is not what makes female characters strong, and it's not what makes male characters strong either. There are different kinds of strengths, and there are different kinds of weaknesses and vulnerabilities, and these are all things that make all of these characters human and interesting. So while Whedon may, on occasion, write a character that maybe is not the absolute feminist ideal of what we want these women to be, I think that what he writes to is a human ideal of what people are, and that That's incredibly valuable. And I feel really disappointed that he's had to take, um, you know, as much as much heavy gunfire as he has over these things. It's not fair.
2: It's also not fair, I think, to represent Whedon's approach to female characters with this single archetype. Yeah. Because he also writes Buffy and he also writes Joyce he and also he writes Giles from time and he writes time, Xander
1: and he sure, writes I mean they're all even characters within, and people first. Absolutely but yeah. even
2: just within the feminine sphere mm-hmm. he also writes strong capable characters who could not be more different he created from this Cordelia. very singular archetype. Yes. He created Zoe. I yeah. mean Zoe's amazing.
1: Zoe is absolutely. She is a, a real kick ass woman and that's great and she can be that and that's fine and it's also fine that River is the damaged waif that she and we is. have
2: Kaylee and we have Anara right. and we have you know all of the other characters.
1: The, the Firefly characters sure. are the ones that we're going off into. Yeah, we're we're, so we're this jumping has around gone here off to the Firefly side. Firefly and somewhat. Dollhouse.
2: If you haven't seen Firefly or Dollhouse, then this must have been a baffling conversation. It for you.
1: must have been, but I definitely <laughs> recommend that you go and check them out. I think that that Whedon tells great stories about really interesting characters. And can you say that everything he does is perfect? But not everything anybody does is perfect. I think I, that it's always interesting and it's always well-intentioned and it's always about story first, yeah. which is why I love him.
2: I can guarantee, too, that at some point in the relatively near future, we will have a Patreon-exclusive Dusted Extra episode in which we watch the pilot of Dollhouse. Because oh, yeah. that is that's going to happen. a really interesting show it that's is not really completely show. successful. But it's a really interesting but it's always interesting.
1: I think interesting yeah. matters.
2: I think it absolutely does.
1: All right. So shall we get back into Please, this? Please, <laughs> let's. We ran off on a <laughs> tangent there. In her throne room, Cordy nervously tries to delay as she's being prepared for the Gruuselug. But when he's brought in da another inversion. It's a handsome, human-looking warrior. Yep,
2: played so. exactly the way that you would expect. Exactly. It's a nice beat.
1: Yes, it, it is it the works expected, well enough. unexpected.
2: <laughs> yeah, I do think, too, that this is as good a time as any to, to call out Charisma Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Accordingly, is not well written in this episode. Yes. There are moments when the performance falters a little bit, mm-hmm. too. Perhaps this is... Just rampant speculation, perhaps because Charisma Carpenter herself realizes that critically is not being terribly not well Not being well-served. And... I feel as though some of the worst lines mm-hmm. are somewhat lacking in commitment. Right. But she manages to sell the good stuff extremely well, of course, because she's, she's just great.
1: I think she really she's does.
2: She's almost enough to make me watch Lucifer.
1: Oh my goodness, I know Charisma Carpenter is going to be on Lucifer has and I, just I might watch it. just been announced in
2: Lucifer's second season, which may, as we record this, even be starting B-M-B- tonight. Air? I think it's this week.
1: D.B. Woodside, as much as I love him, wasn't enough to keep me watching Lucifer, but I probably will dip back in just to see Charisma Carpenter.
2: Until the announcement of Charisma Carpenter, no force on Earth <laughs> would have compelled me to watch Lucifer past that first episode, but yeah. Charisma Carpenter may be it. We've been uh, loving her over on Veronica Mars, too, so if you haven't seen her in that, definitely check it out and listen to our Veronica Mars podcast, We Used to Be Friends. It's available at StoryWonk.com. Tuesdays
1: on (laughs) StoryWonk.com. Outside, Fred and Angel are looking for his friends when they are beset upon by guards. Angel warns Fred that she might see something that frightens her, but she needs to remember that he's her friend. He then vamps out, only he doesn't become a standard vampire. He transforms into a full monster demon. He rips the guards apart and is about to feed on Fred when suddenly he turns his head and runs off.
2: This is... Just terrific.
1: This is one of the things that I absolutely yeah. love about this arc is that so far Angel has come to Pylea and everything has been easy, but there's a cost.
2: The sincerity with which he delivers that line to oh, Fred, you yeah. might see something that frightens you, but remember I'm your friend.
0: Yeah,
2: It's so good. It's so immediately intimate. And this, I think, is one of the things that I, I love about Fred or one of the reasons that I love Fred the way mm-hmm. that I do is that there is an openness to Amy Acker's performance that seems to bring out the best In everyone. Oh, yeah. Everyone seems better when they're with her. Mm -hmm. And that's a rare talent.
1: It is, absolutely. In the throne room, Cordy and Gru are talking when Lorne is brought in. Cordy pardons him and sends him away, shushing his protest that they need to find Gunn and Wesley.
2: We'll catch up with Lorne in a little while. But I did want to draw attention to another moment of self-awareness, uh-huh. acute self-awareness in this scene. This is the scene where Cordelia is explaining to Gru that she is an actress mm-hmm. back on her home planet. And she says, the last job I had, you should have seen the horrible thing they made me wear. It was this tiny, skimpy, exploitative. And as she is saying this, <laughs> she is kind of pushing her elbows into the side of her body to emphasize her bosom, I guess. <laughs> she takes a beat, looks down and says, uh, nothing like this. <laughs> And you can't help but feel as though Tim Minear is yeah. giving someone an askance. Taking
1: look. a slap. <laughs> there's, there's, exactly. there's a little side Throwing eye. Throw a little shade little there. A little side eye <laughs> happening here
2: in the script, which I
1: like. Mm hmm
2: doesn't redeem the bikini for me.
1: It doesn't redeem either bikini. Either the one from the commercial in the beginning or this one.
2: Well, the one from the commercial in the beginning, I don't mind so much because it is presented as objectification. Because that's the point.
1: It's supposed to be, right. Mm
2: -hmm. So we are made uncomfortable by it, but we're supposed to be made uncomfortable by it. That doesn't seem to be the case here. Mm -hmm. Though I am weirdly uncomfortable watching Cordelia wear this outfit. It just feels intrusive in a strange way.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's highly objectifying. Sure. You know, especially because everybody else is wrapped in layers and layers and exactly. layers. So I'm thinking it's got to be cold what in there, that especially under metal. At? I don't know. Seriously. Outside, Wes and Gunn are lost, but the angel beast finds them. Wesley sees his back tattoo through this tattered shirt and realizes it's Angel just as Angel attacks Gunn. Fred, using a leather pouch full of blood, gets Angel's attention and he follows her. She runs, drawing him away gun and wesley barely have time to process what has happened when they are surrounded by a band of human rebels carrying crude weapons they place wesley and Gunn in stocks and when wesley tells the band that they are close personal friends of the princess the rebels decide to chop their heads off and present them to the princess as a message
2: that's how you send a message that's never how mind how email never send text messages exactly. no no that's how you do it. Right. It's a decent enough scene. The scene with Angel, obviously, mm-hmm. incredibly strong. And one Fred's of
1: intelligence and bravery resourcefulness, with the, the little sure. leather pouch full of blood.
2: This is one of the the pivotal moments in this entire arc, I mm-hmm. think. And it works tremendously well. This is a relatively silly, relatively exaggerated, relatively heightened and hyperbolic arc of right. Angel. Mm-hmm. But these emotional notes, really, Wesley's arc... Mm -hmm. I guess, and Angel's arc, they work absolutely.
1: They're really powerful. I love Angel's emotional state throughout this entire thing. It's really As strong
2: as anything we've seen. Yeah, and and
1: absolutely narratively earned, which is not the case in all of the storylines in Pylea, but definitely (laughs) for these guys. In Fred's cave, Angel sees his reflection in a pool of water and transforms back into Angel and collapses shivering on the floor. Fred takes care of him until he feels better. He says he can't go back. He can't face his friends after they've seen what he is. And she says, that's okay. He can stay there with her.
2: I don't know that the mechanics of vampirism in Pylea, on Pylea, within Pylea, are a terribly fruitful topic for discussion. <laughs> I find it interesting. I like the metaphor far yeah. more than I yes. like this this metaphysical
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, justification. I like the idea that Angel can be both more man and more monster. Mm -hmm. That's a really powerful idea, and it's represented beautifully. And we get, of course, all the the heartache, the angst Mm -hmm. that accompanies that. I'm a little fuzzy on some of the details. Yeah, If human Angel can see his reflection, but also vampire Angel can see his reflection, Mm -hmm. where does the inability for regular on-Earth vampires to cast reflections come from? it must only only in this this median state
1: well it must be whatever invisible kind in of light wave
2: it could be the sun then that makes a certain amount of sense Man, I'll, well I'll take that it. i like it i don't entirely understand it it mm-hmm. doesn't feel completely developed but it works as a metaphor and that's all we need it to do i love the metaphor of and it of course yeah fred caring for angel it's just beautiful
1: it's really wonderful and that moment where she says he can stay with her and you yeah. know that that's really what she wants. It's such a lovely thing and that she's not afraid of the beast in him. I think it's so good and it speaks so well of her. just wonderful. In Cordy's throne room, night has fallen and the two are still talking. Gru encourages her to use her powers for good. And she agrees, ordering parchment from the priests so she can make declarations. Silas doesn't like this, so he sends her a message in the form of Lauren's decapitated head.
2: And that's it. We're and done that's with the Through the glass. now. Yeah. So uh, obviously that character's finished. Um, <laughs> didn't really go out on a high note, but obviously it's going to stick. <laughs> we definitely wouldn't use this as a means of generating false conflict for a cliffhanger ending, would we?
1: Not at all.
2: We super do. This is probably my least favorite of uh, so, all the reveals.
0: Yeah.
2: I'm not a fan of Headless Lorne. It's one thing for Pylea to be weird. Yeah. And it's one thing for our characters when they are here to be weird. It's Mm -hmm. one thing for Angel to have this exaggerated dimorphic state. Right. That's all fine. But this means that when we go back to L.A., Lauren can be decapitated. Yes. And I don't like that so much. And
1: that's weird. That
2: challenges my understanding of the character because Mm -hmm. back in L.A., we will no longer be in a fairy tale right despite what you know so this is Hollywood part of the, would have <laughs> this
1: is part of the fairy tale that Lauren will actually carry with him back to yeah. Los Angeles and it feels it feels a little bit weird plus there is some kind of magical thing because just the pure physical talking you know, you kind of need your lungs and your whole thing yes. to do that, unless all of that is kept inside of his head, separate from everything else. Well, we do know really that there sense. are
2: very different biologies there present are on the very Biologia, different
1: so. biology. So I'm just, <laughs> I'm going to let it go. It's not my favorite twist, but, you know. Nor
2: mine, yeah. honestly. Let's move through the third part of this three-part story, shall we?
1: All right. Into There's No Place Like Plurt's Glurb. Cordy is horrified <laughs> at the sight of Lorne's severed head, and even more horrified when he opens his eyes and begins talking to her. He won't be really dead until they mutilate his body. If Cordy can get his head to the mutilation chamber before that, he will survive. She trades outfits with a serving girl and sneaks through the castle. And this is where I like Cordy. She's trading outfits. She gets the servant girl. Yes. She's going through the thing. She's got agency. She's got something to do.
2: Well, she does. Mm -hmm. It's not an important thing. It won't actually you know carry much significance mm-hmm. within the story but you're right at least she's taking action now. at
1: least she's doing something yes meanwhile the priests send a captain to go kill angel and the rest of cordy's friends in order to send another message to cordy <laughs> about who is really in charge here everyone apparently wants nobody send likes messages. to write a letter right nobody likes to just go in and have a communication it's Look, always got to be decapitation you write the memo
2: you put it on the bulletin board in the lunch room exactly. everyone sees it there's no <laughs> right. misunderstanding it here. ends
1: up on passiveaggressivenotes.com. aggressive there you go <laughs> there you <laughs> <laughs> In the cave, Fred feeds Angel the Pylean version of oatmeal. He's horrified by the demon he becomes there, but Fred's seen worse. She wants to stay there, just the two of them.
2: I love it. It's such an incidental and, and really irrelevant detail, mm-hmm. but I love the discussion of food. Yeah. I love the intimacy of it. I love the intelligence and the resourcefulness that that underpins Fred's somewhat bizarre actions. <laughs> That there's such enormous energy and affection mm-hmm. there that it is transformed in part into tragedy yeah. because she's so obviously, you know, holding on by a thread. Oh here. yeah,
1: no, her sanity is not. But yeah. it's
2: also admirable. Mm-hmm. We get to have that that wonderful bittersweet conflict between those two impulses, and and I just love it. And yeah. the whole notion of the bark enchilada, I know, is just great and fantastic <laughs> comic <laughs> timing love too. That
1: final moment too, where she says, "There's work to be done." <laughs> 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 I like that a lot. Angel tells her about the portals to Los Angeles, and she says she's been trying to open portals, but it hasn't been working. I love this. I love that. Here we have this portal that the Drocking came through. We have this portal that Landoc came yeah. through. We had no explanation. How did any of this happen? And it turns out it was Fred all along trying to get home. Except
2: that Fred's been on Pylea for five years, yeah. and we're back to this time dilation mm-hmm. problem. She's been on Pylea for five years, and all of her portal work has apparently taken place within the span of the last week.
1: Yeah, I guess so. I guess
2: those are the portals that we know of. Mm-hmm. But surely someone would have mentioned someone think, who looks like had, Lauren coming through. Had a
1: bunch of Drakken been running through Los Angeles, so we would go. have gotten to Angel's desk eventually. Yeah,
2: just a, a minor inconsistency, a minor, yeah. a minor timeline problem there that that bothers me a little. But I do love the explanation that it was Fred. All along it was All Fred along. who started oh, this and entire her story. Brilliant,
1: there. the writing on the walls yeah. and the cave and everything that she's been doing. I just I absolutely love this character. Just then the captain attacks and Angel fights. The captain spears Angel, just missing his heart, but before he can try again, Fred takes him out with a boulder and Angel passes out on the ground. The guards also attack the rebel camp, looking for Wes and Gunn, but even in stocks, they manage to fight off the guards. The rebels release them, and Gunn and Wesley decide to help them invade the castle so they can rescue Cordy. Wesley suggests some strategy to them, and they make him their leader. (laughs) And I love that (laughs) moment, too, from Gunn, where Gunn's like, why is everybody making you their leader?
2: (laughs) It's natural. It's understandable. Of course. Wesley's authority is unmistakable. It's great. Mm -hmm. It takes us down some dark... Paths even by the end of the episode, it yeah. takes us down some dark. Oh paths. yeah,
1: no, it's really. And wonderful. I love and, that we commit to that, and very surprising in those moments because in something that is, you know, inherently kind of silly, it's kind of a silly well, world despite all the decapitations.
2: If we were of a mind to, you know, nitpick, mm-hmm. we might question the underlying motivation here. Mm-hmm. This is not the kind of story that we've tackled before in Buffy or in Angel. Mm-hmm. We haven't really looked at. The tough choices that a leader has to make. More okay. often than not, in fact, we take the opposite stance mm-hmm. that the leader cannot make the tough choices, that there is a virtue in an excess of humanity mm-hmm. and compassion where you will do the impossible thing rather than the pragmatic thing, which
1: is something that we've just addressed with
2: Buffy. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Here though, we're, we're investigating this really interesting space and I kind of wonder, where it came from. I kind of mm-hmm. wonder what Wesley has been going through that has led him to this point, because I haven't really seen a great deal of foreshadowing. Of I haven't this seen discussion. this guy. Yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, he's related to the other guy. Mm-hmm. I think you can draw a line from right. from the Wesley that we've seen in the middle of the season.
1: But we haven't seen him have to make right. this kind of decision post-gunshot
2: yet. post-gunshot Wesley, right. you know? Mm-hmm. I think we can see a similarity there, but this is new... And again, because we're doing it in Pylea, because everything is heightened, it feels weird to have this, this really dark thread. Something
1: that's so grounded in in a very uncomfortable reality. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. When Angel wakes up, Fred has bound the captain on the floor of the cave and tells Angel about their plans to kill Cordy, Wes, and Gunn. They've already killed Swath. Angel has to go save them. Luckily, Fred knows how to get to the castle.
2: When Cordy, (laughs) just one more little exactly. fake out there at the end of the scene. Angel no. goes off by himself. Oh, no, wait, he doesn't. <laughs> I mean, okay.
1: Yep, yep we gotta <laughs> fit in as many as possible. When Cordy finds the mutilation chamber, a green body in Lorne's red outfit has already been mutilated, so why is his head still talking? Gru comes in and confesses. He swapped the clothing with another body to protect Lorne. He had Lauren's body smuggled back to his mother's farm, and Landoc will be taking the head there.
2: So I don't understand what we're supposed to make of this, because Gru apparently knows all about Lauren's people, all yes. about the Death clan. Mm-hmm. But the priests who decapitated Lauren and presented Cordelia with his head, apparently as proof of his death, didn't.
1: Well, they had planned on mutilating his body, so I guess as long as they mutilated the body, they just gave her a piece of it.
2: But they must have known that we just did like literally Jeff just did this five minutes ago we <laughs> haven't had time to, to throw his body into the wood chipper yet in the yet. mutilation chamber <laughs> did they not know is this not the kind of thing that you would
1: check and you would think that they it would have be to something assume. they would be on top of sure right. they yeah.
2: must have believed that Lorne was dead completely they've like, got so much to dead. do
1: they've got a wife to kill and <laughs> a country to blame for it that's true yes <laughs> it's all Prince
2: Humperdinck's problems <laughs>
1: exactly back in her throne room Gru explained what will happen to her visions after the Kamshek. They will pass to Gru. Cordy doesn't like that. The visions are painful, but they're hers, and she uses them to fight evil. Just then, she has a vision. This one of Gru being attacked by a vicious
2: beast. A very familiar looking vicious beast. Very familiar. An angel looking
1: vicious beast. And
2: I like the way that this is represented because Cordy doesn't know. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't have any reason to assume that this was angel. That that would be angel. It works out really Mm -hmm. rather beautifully. So we get to foreshadow without leaning on it too hard. Right. I like this Cordelia more than I like the Cordelia that we've had in the rest of the story. It's a
1: great moment.
2: Two and a half days
1: Mm
0: -hmm. she's
2: been in Pylea two and a half days is apparently enough time I guess actually much less than that a day and a half maybe Mm -hmm. has been sufficient time for her to forge this bond with Gru
0: yeah
2: it doesn't work yeah I don't find it convincing I actually I never liked Gru as a character I always found him to be very very flat watching it this time Mm -hmm. I think I was a little unfair Mm -hmm. I think there's more going on in that performance yeah than I initially saw Mm -hmm. but this this forced romance particularly coupled we should talk a little about the music in mm-hmm. this final episode in particular the i guess what we can call the Fred theme sure mm-hmm. that doesn't come back in the future which is so weird because it is such a poignant and haunting mm-hmm. piece of music i love that piece of music but then it's coupled with these excessive strings
0: yeah mm-hmm. when we're
2: hanging out with with cordy and with grew it doesn't work. The romance ultimately doesn't work. I remain unconvinced by it. No, and
1: it's it comes down to I'm hot, you're hot, let's be hot together, which is always unconvincing, but especially in a compressed time sure. frame.
2: Particularly when we're conflating romance mm-hmm. with this, you know, very, very thin and slight double entendre of, yeah. of the mating ritual. Mm-hmm. It's just a little much.
1: Yeah, no, it is. And uh, it's not the most compelling part of this story. But now... We get some compelling parts. Outside, Wes and Gunn are strategizing with the rebels when Angel and Fred show up. The plan is to have Angel challenge the Gruselug, and during the distraction, the rebels will attack. Fred has enough knowledge of the portals that if they can get the books, she might be able to get them back home. Angel is worried that if he brings out the beast again, he won't come back. Wesley assures him that he will come back, although privately with Gunn, he says he doesn't know. It's just important that Angel believes he'll come back.
2: I love that. No, it's we get so good. Two lines. The first with Gun, you try not to get anybody killed, you end up getting everybody killed. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is maybe too heavy a line. Mm-hmm. Considering what Gun has just gone through. And again, I hate to harp on this, but it's been three days. Yes. It's been no, three days. No, the compressed timeline, I think, is significant. Gun was yeah. struggling with the death of one of his crew, one of his most trusted friends. Yes. It's been three days and Wesley throws out, you try not to get anyone killed, you get everybody killed. Hey, you know what? Maybe a little tact, maybe a little empathy consideration would be good here.
1: Well, I think we've all completely forgotten about Gunn's escapades with his crew back in Los Angeles. And so has Gunn, because when Wesley says it, we get no reaction from him. (laughs)
2: We absolutely don't. You're right. So
1: I guess he's over it.
2: For me, the far more unsettling, far more disquieting Mm -hmm. line is that it doesn't matter. It matters that he believes it. Exactly. That's... So powerful and, and so such, yeah. antithetical to our understanding of how heroism works well, in the Buffy. Wesley
1: verse. is a pragmatic hero, and sometimes but that requires a certain level of coldness. It is an interesting question, and one you're right, we usually Pragmatism don't ask that question. It's
2: not a virtue in the Buffy verse; right. quite the opposite. Yeah. We have, as you as you know, to just gone through this with mm-hmm. Buffy. The pragmatic thing to do is to kill Ben. The pragmatic thing to do is to kill Dawn. Obviously, we're not going to do those things right. because that would be monstrous.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Pragmatism is in so many instances, in both Buffy and in Angel, pragmatism is the enemy of the good. It
1: is the opposite. Why do we fight? Right? There's no pragmatic exactly. value to why do we fight.
2: We fight because, we fight
1: because it's the right thing to do. This is what
2: defines us. Yeah. Wesley's going down this incredibly dark path. It and is. I think that we're already cued to understand. You know, uh-huh. even if you haven't necessarily been watching the show as carefully as we have been watching the show, right. we're already cued by by context to understand that this is this is bleak. This
1: is a disturbing place for him yeah. to be, but it is also the role of a leader, you know, and he kind of no way, has a point.
2: Though not a good leader, not a strong leader. Mm-hmm. Pragmatism gets you, you know, Professor Walsh. It gets yeah. you the initiative. It yeah. doesn't get you genuine heroism. mm mm-hmm. That's going to be an ongoing discussion. it's, as we move a, it's into a really three of Angel.
1: really interesting thing they're doing we with Wesley
2: should commend though Alexis Denisov for oh, I think the always. best performance of the show so far.
1: oh always he's just I love ringing it he as does Wesley. everything he's given to do even when it's goofy Wesley and I hate it he still does an amazing yeah. job with it and I love him. At the castle, the priests are anxious for Cordy and Gru to calm Shuck, but then Angel steps into the village square and challenges Gru. Gru meets Angel in the square and they fight as the rebel attack begins. Angel holds back as much as he can and finally lets loose with the Beast.
2: Which is a really strong reveal. Yeah, it is. That's that's a good moment.
1: Because he's trying to hold back, yeah. you know, and, and then he just lets tell- it go. I
2: don't know if I'm reading into the fight choreography, mm-hmm. but it certainly feels as though Angel is more restrained and less fluid than oh, he would sure. otherwise be. Yeah. And that final moment, the, the trivial strength that he displays tearing his arm from, from where right. it's been bound mm-hmm. is... So illustrative mm-hmm. of, of who this creature is, of what this creature is. I love it.
1: I absolutely love it. Silas attacks Cordy. And when Wes, Gunn, and some of the rebels charge in, they provide just the distraction Cordy needs to take Silas's head off. Cordy's worried about the beast about to kill Gru. And Wesley tells her that the beast is Angel. In the square, Grew and the angel beast fight, but Angel manages to bring his human form back, and he tells Grew that they're going to need to find another way. He will not fight anymore. Cordy rushes in, saying she loves him. Angel has some confusion for a moment, but it's Grew she's talking about. She loves Grew.
2: That thumping sound. That's my head on the desk. <laughs> in case you were wondering, I know that you weren't because you're all doing the same thing, presumably. Mm-hmm. It's... Cute enough, and I like the way that we cap it. I like the way mm-hmm. that Angel keeps the joke going, just a couple more beats but you than love you would like a a like be. Maybe,
1: right,
2: maybe love's too strong a <laughs> word.
1: <laughs>
2: I love that David boreanaz is, nice. is great, of course. This is not the story we're telling here, and love is far too big a word to use here mm-hmm. for either side of, uh, of this yeah. relationship.
0: Mm-hmm. I,
2: I don't buy it. I find it enormously frustrating, particularly because the narrative momentum Mm -hmm. at this point in the story is such that we understand that Cordelia and Gru will not, in fact, be spending the rest of their lives together. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's too much.
1: Yeah, it is. It is a bit much. Before they leave, Cordy puts Gru in charge. Without Silas, the other priests are powerless and she leaves (laughs) Pylea in the hands of her honorable warrior. The crew picks up Lorne, now fully restored, at his mother's and they open a portal, crashing the car into Caritas, where Lorne, once again, has some remodeling to do. Back at the Hyperion, the gang comes in to find Willow, tearful and waiting, and Angel knows instantly, it's Buffy.
2: So the final mechanics of the plot aside, they're they're fine, we do Mm -hmm. what we have to do. As I said, the visual impact of the Angelmobile crashing through Caritas is strong. Mm -hmm. I wish we could have taken a second for Fred. Mm -hmm. I wish we could have taken a moment to see Fred's reaction to returning to Earth, but we don't. Yeah. This is a moment in our discussion of this narrative that is somewhat compromised by the approach that we have to take here on Dusted. Mm -hmm. Because if you were watching this live on May the 22nd, 2001, you would have just seen The Gift. Yeah. So that emotional impact would have been... Absolutely fresh. You would have had no time to process it. Mm-hmm. When we get to Angel, we absolutely commit to the story that we're telling. There's no moment of reflection through the body of of the Pylea Ark mm-hmm. here, through this last chapter of the Pylea Ark. But then when we return to the Hyperion, it is like returning to the real world. Mm-hmm. This is crashing back to Earth. And that is why Willow doesn't have to say anything. Yep. Nothing has to happen We don't have to have this emotional state informed for us. We don't have to have some pointer, some some cue here Mm -hmm. to describe how we ought to feel. It's allowed to simply be. It's allowed to simply hang in the air because for the viewers of Buffy and Angel at the time, this was a raw and ragged wound Mm -hmm. which is not at all to suggest that it isn't still a raw and ragged wound for me 15 years (laughs) after the fact i still get played by the end of this episode Mm -hmm. every time i watch it i feel that jubilation i love the return i love angel being playful i Mm -hmm. love that there's no place like and then willow
0: yeah
2: and she doesn't have to do anything she doesn't have to say anything she's just there It's so powerful and it is perhaps the greatest moment of connection between Angel and Buffy because Mm -hmm. we've had crossover episodes before and as we move into season six slash season three, those are pretty much going to (laughs) stop. We're not really going to see that much interactivity between the Mm -hmm. two series in the future. We've had Buffy appear in Angel. We've had Angel return to Sunnydale. Those have been powerful moments, but this is weirdly more intimate Mm -hmm. because willow is sharing a very powerful wound with angel it is the the sharing of grief is such a personal thing and of course it's it's so right Mm -hmm. that it's willow yeah it could have been giles it could have been xander it could have been any other character that has has shared dna it could have been a phone call Mm -hmm. but it's not It's the person that it has to be. Yeah. And I love that.
1: Yeah. That's really nice.
2: The only way I would love it more, I think, is if we'd had a moment between Willow and Angel when Angel so recently visited Sunnydale in the wake of Joyce's death.
0: Oh, yeah. If there would just been
2: space there mm-hmm. for a brief interaction, it wouldn't have been much. Just something. Oh, I've just broken my own heart by thinking, what if Angel had said, hey, you'll have to come down to LA someday?
0: Oh, man. <laughs> to, uh,
2: if we'd foreshadowed right. it there. that perhaps no, would that have been, been too cruel. much for any human being to bear. <laughs> but it is yeah. enormously important and shows such a respect for this shared universe mm-hmm. in so many ways. Because we're going to have the network split over the hiatus.
0: Right.
2: In so many ways, this is the the fullest realization. This is, in a sense, the apotheosis of the shared Buffy-Angel universe. Mm-hmm. We're never going to be this tightly tied together again.
0: Yeah.
2: And that's sad, too, when you're watching this from the perspective of 2016. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're looking back on it and you think, yeah, we're kind of done with these two shows
0: sharing a world now
2: because they're going to be on different networks and that's going to make things that much more complicated. They're not going to reference each other because they're going to be on different schedules. Mm -hmm. You know, Angel's going to take an extended month long hiatus while Buffy is still airing and vice versa. It's Mm -hmm. going to be, there's, there's going to be much more space between the two shows. And I think that there is a sense in which we can look back on that and kind of grieve for it because we are also seeing something come to an end. Yeah. And all of that complicated emotional volatility think, is is allowed space mm-hmm. simply by having Willow be there. I, I completely love it. I've also completely dominated the conversation. What do you think <laughs> of Willow showing up at the Hyperion at the end? Well,
1: I think you said most of what I would have said. Um, I think Willow is, of course, the perfect person. Of course, it's not a phone call. It's not a letter. Willow comes in person to tell Angel because Angel still has that impact on Buffy. And we will see references, although David Boreanaz will not cross over into Buffy and Buffy and Sarah Michelle Gellar will not come back to Angel. We do see references. We'll have references sure. to each other um, at, the, at the beginning of the following seasons. Um, so we do have a little bit more of that kind of shared space. So this is kind of a moment where even though we do have Buffy coming back for two more seasons, it is truly the end of an era of these shows sort of working in tandem on the same network on the same night on the same schedule um so it's it's, we do see a split sort of happening between these shows at this point um
2: i wonder what we would have done because clearly we've been foreshadowing the gift for an entire season Mm -hmm. over on buffy for more than an entire season so we knew that that was coming which means that the writers of angel knew that it was coming too i wonder what this would have looked like If we'd stuck with the original plan and arced Darla all the way through the season, if we'd never Mm -hmm. had Pylea and the climax of Angel season two had been some version of Reprise Epiphany, Mm -hmm. I don't quite know how we would have made that work, but we would have done something to come to a final climax for that story. I wonder how that would have worked. I wonder what the end, what the last moment of the second season of Angel would have looked like if we're dealing with... Angel's relationship with Darla, presumably still in some kind of ongoing sense with Angel's curse, with his humanity, Mm. with his his very being. I'm tempted to believe that there would have been more connection between the two shows if we'd stuck with the original plan and gone with Darla, because there's maybe space in that story for Buffy to exist.
1: But this moment wouldn't have been quite. The shock that it is, I mean, even knowing, you know, knowing what has happened, we have seen the gift Mm -hmm. Um, coming from Pyleo, which is such an alternate universe into this space where we crash right into the reality of Buffy's death. um, I think that that has an incredible power and the fact that Willow doesn't have to say anything that we just have this silence. An Angel Knows, mm-hmm. you know, um, I think it's incredibly beautiful, really powerful, a punch of an ending. Yes.
2: So there will continue to be some connections between the two shows as we move forward, though they will be more fragile. They will be more infrequent mm-hmm. than they have been to date. Yeah. In some ways, that's a strong choice. In some ways. Buffy is going to be a stronger show, separated from Angel. And Angel certainly, I think, is going to be a stronger show, separated from Buffy. Though that may be entirely coincidental. It may simply be the case that these two shows are finding their voice, that they're finding their maturity. That's not to suggest that Buffy has been struggling quite as much as Angel has been struggling. (laughs) But season six and seven, I think, of Buffy demonstrate a growing maturity and a growing awareness of the show's own voice and shape and momentum. Mm -hmm. And obviously the same is true of Angel as we move into season three. So that's our Pylea arc. Before we put this on the big list of every Angel episode ever, though, as one combined unit, I do want to try and make an effort to break down these three episodes. Which of these three do you think is the strongest chapter? And which, if any, is the weakest chapter?
1: Huh, I think, okay, I think the first one? It's mm-hmm. Probably the weakest for me. Yeah, um, I think it feels it feels like it's got the most padding. It's got a lot of kind of chewing and throwing. Um, I think that I like Tim Minear personally. Mm-hmm. I think that I like it because I like his his grip on dialogue and character, and I think that he um, he writes well for these characters overall. I think there's a lot of, of really good Fred stuff, in and uh, through the Looking Glass, mm-hmm. um, but I did. Also, like, there's no place like (laughs) Plurt's So,
2: So you're seeing these three chapters as being very similar to one another. I think
1: they are really similar. I think they do work really well together.
2: I think I agree with you. I think the first is definitely the weakest, though. I would say that's not so much a scripting problem as it is a structural pacing problem. Perhaps more than anything mm -hmm. else, there just isn't enough material to really satisfyingly fill that first chapter. We have to get Cordelia to Pylea, we have to let her have her adventure mm-hmm. before we can send the rest of the investigators to catch up because yes. she needs that head start in order to establish our ongoing conflicts. And so we get the reveal at the end of the episode. That means that fully half of the first half of the episode yeah. is completely dead air. There is no reason for Lorne... To go and visit his little psychic buddy, who, to the best of my recollection, will never recur. And
1: is not a significant character. No, yeah. I would have much, much preferred it if they'd all just gone back through the portal, all had ended up in different spaces, had to find each other, so that, that you give them that. Certainly, and would have been that a stronger time conceit. moved sure. faster over in Pylea, that by the time they realized Cordy was gone and had gone through, a month had passed.
2: Yeah. So you know? I don't really blame Mayor Smith yeah. for for the quality of the first episode, and I certainly don't think there's a lot of. This it's a blue structural issue between... more than anything yeah. else. Yeah. I think you're mm-hmm. absolutely right. It's a thankless task, yes. writing the first mm-hmm. installment in in what is effectively a trilogy. I think my favorite moments in the arc as a whole take place in the final episode. Mm-hmm. But I think the second is my favorite. Yeah. I think that the second is far and away the most consistent. And I think that Tim Minear has a better ear for comedy mm-hmm. and a better ear for the hyperbolic fantastic excess of yeah. Pylea. I think he has a better, stronger, and more joyous handle on everything that is happening, pretty much. And it doesn't hurt, too, that he also exhibits, I think, to me, the most self-awareness. I love Mm -hmm. those sly little references to the show's Mm -hmm. text itself. So for me, it's actually surprising how compatible these three episodes are. Yeah, They really do feel like one complete arc. And if... I hadn't looked into it. If I hadn't known that they were written by different writers, I wouldn't necessarily have I might that not up.
1: suspect, yeah. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I
2: think it's probably likely, too, that given how many location shoots we yeah. do, it's probably very likely that it, one individual director oversaw the shots that belong in another episode. And we've just simplified and streamlined the credits here because this was clearly produced as a block.
1: And the writers, I'm sure, all worked closely together because it is a fairly seamless transition from one episode into the next. I don't feel a huge difference, you know, in the creative force behind it. So it it feels really harmonious.
2: So this is... A vacation. You used that word very early in the podcast, and I think it's exactly the right word. We're Mm -hmm. we're all just going to take a break from being in Angel the TV show and go be in Xena, Warrior
0: Princess.
2: (laughs) What do you think would have happened to Angel if this show had, if the Pylea arc had provided a template for Angel the series moving forward? Do you think there is a sustainable version of Angel that is this comedic, hyperbolic fantasy inflected?
1: I don't know that I would have enjoyed it. I mean, I think that you can <laughs> you can do whatever you want and see where it takes you. I can imagine them having done something a little more out of the box mm-hmm. from what they've been doing. I'm glad they went back in the box for the rest of the um, of the run of the show. It was fun to kind of go and hang out in Pylea. I am not sure that I would have really been able to hang in there for an extended run of that sure. kind of thing. Um, but in the moment, it felt some like something of a palate cleanser between what we'd had in season two and what we're moving into in season three. It is neither of those things, but right. it sort of stands in the middle and, and, and serves as a dividing line. You know, Right.
2: And though it is... Obviously padded, though Mm -hmm. there is simply too much time to fill with the material available because it feels like a break. Because it's clearly doing something very purposeful and intentional and very different from what we've seen from Angel before. You can almost forgive that Mm -hmm. padding. It does have a slightly touristy quality to it that I don't mind, that I actually think benefits the show a great deal. So it's not the tightest story arc that we're ever going to get from angel it's not the most ambitious and nor is it the most grounded it Mm -hmm. is though i think among the most fun yeah there is a riotous lovably stupid quality to the (laughs) pilea arc that is punctuated by these moments of of real gravitas real emotion real complexity yes but mostly it's kind of a roller coaster ride and I don't really mind that and absolutely it benefits from comparison with a lot of season two. Oh, sure. Let's do the difficult thing. Yeah. Let's put this three-part episode on the big put list.
1: This outlier in the list. Give yeah. me
2: at least a region. Are we talking top 10? Are we talking top 20? Where are you I think in your...
1: I think we're top 10. Okay. I would say we're top 10 sure. because a lot of... I mean, at least for me, a lot of season two um, I didn't really enjoy as much as i would have liked um so i i feel like this kind of comes in in the middle of the pack judgment reprise and epiphany blind date <laughs> in, in that arena. the middle of
2: the pack if by the pack you mean the top the 10, top ten. The, the, middle the middle of the, of the top of the 10 list. pack
1: yes mm-hmm.
2: for me the real question about the pylea arc is it's angelness. Mm-hmm. we talked about this last week when we were discussing the gift and whether or not the gift was more or less representative of Buffy right, as a mm-hmm. show than Hush. The Pylea arc is obviously less representative of Angel than pretty much any other episode of Angel. Mm-hmm. It may well be the least representative episode of Angel. It is the
1: least angel, angel. angel episode, yes. Yes.
2: Mm-hmm. That has to, I think, inform where I put it on the list. Because if I'm making a list of Angel episodes, the least Angel episode can't really go at the top of that list. Mm-hmm. It can't really go, honestly, in the top three or four or even five. For me, I think the absolute ceiling on yes. my placement here mm-hmm. has to be I Will Remember You. Mm-hmm. Oh, because yeah. Because I no, think that too. is... Mm-hmm. One of the quintessential Angel episodes, that is one of the most definitively Angel episodes, and therefore it has to beat an episode that is, by any standard, by any measure, barely Angel. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: for me, that's the ceiling. I think the basement is probably Reunion.
0: Mm-hmm. It may...
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, it's definitely better than Blind Date. Okay, so it's definitely okay. better than Blind Date. So for me, it goes somewhere between I Will Remember You and Blind Date. There are only two episodes in that space, mm-hmm. Judgment, and then the combined reprise and epiphany two-parter. Yeah. Where do you feel it falls? Is it better or worse for you than Judgment? Ugh.
1: I think Judgment is, I mean, Judgment is better. It's more Judgment's Angel. strong.
2: It's, it's a statement yeah. of intent. It gives us a Cordelia that we can really get behind. It it sets out a promise for the second season mm-hmm. that ultimately will not be fulfilled, but right. which is at least, you know, but admirable. But it, it
1: puts in motion. And it, what it does in that episode, regardless of what happens afterward, I think is strong. Mm-hmm. So I like that. Reprise and Epiphany. Oh, that's kind of a tough call for me. Because I can see arguments. Reprise and Epiphany are, you know, pivotal moments in the season. They Very have a lot of heavy moments. lifting to do. Yeah. They are essentially uh, putting to bed this Darla arc, you mm-hmm. know. Um,
2: but we certainly had more fun watching the Pylea arc oh, well, than we did watching the end of the Darla
0: arc.
1: Yeah, but I think that the <laughs> end of the Darla arc was, was landed quite nicely. I mean, aside from the, you know, the stupid... I've lost my soul fake well, out.
0: Okay,
2: And but, I say this right. as someone who is I think more fond of the Darla arc and as I've learned through the course of doing the second season of Angel here on Dusted, apparently way more fond of the Darla arc <laughs> than like most people.
1: There are people in your so camp. Definitely. I really like yeah. a
2: lot mm-hmm. of the Darla stuff. I don't think it's as completely disastrous as it's oftentimes perceived. No, but I but... do
1: like the landing of it. Yeah, I, I, I like too. you know with, with a couple of moments of exception there. So I don't know. I mean for me I feel like Reprise and Epiphany are more Angel, um, but well, the Pylea arc is more fun. I don't want
2: to set you up with a with a false dichotomy here because I imposed that ceiling and that that floor yeah. on, on my particular rankings. Do you see it going higher or lower than that?
1: No, I'm completely with you. Oh, okay. I, I'm completely, right. <laughs> I'm with you hundred percent. hundred percent. So this is the yeah. space. Yeah. So no, we're definitely in this space. Um, I do. I do think it's better than Blind Date. Reprise and Epiphany for me is the sticking point. I'm I'm having trouble making that decision. What do you think?
2: I think. That the end of the Darla arc is everything that the Pylea arc is not. Yeah. It is ambitious and grounded and a real template and for moving forward. And connected
1: to everything else that we're doing. I think yeah. it's better than the Pylea arc. I think so too. I think, so think prize and Epiphany is Let's better. Let's put
2: it in there. But we put it in there with no malice whatsoever. I no. think with a great deal of affection. Mm-hmm. The Pylea arc is big, dumb fun. But there's a lot to be said for big, dumb fun. It is. There's a lot of ambition the there. And it also
1: brings us Fred. Fred is wonderful and fully realized, you know? I mean,
2: sure, but we Wesley is great. We can't credit this episode for everything that Fred will ultimately be.
1: No, but I think what Fred is in this episode, oh, in fantastic. the Pylea no, sure, arc, sure, sure, sure. is fantastic. I mean, I love what they do with her moving forward, but I mean, what they do with her yeah. just in this in this arc, weirdly, I think is fantastic.
2: This makes the Pylea arc the bottom of the top tier here mm. on our list of yeah. Angel episodes. Yeah. It's the worst of the best yes. Angel mm-hmm. episodes. Mm-hmm. but it is also i think mandatory viewing for a fan of angel in a way that perhaps judgment or yeah. or even arguably 5 by 5 in sanctuary wouldn't necessarily be yeah, I, I don't it's, know. Yeah. It's explosive. It is a cartoon, but it's a lot of fun. It's
1: crazy, wild fun. Yeah. Let's
2: talk about, then, the next phase of Dusted, because that is it for this week. We will not be back on Thursday with a new episode. Mm-hmm. We're going to gather our strength after this marathon episode, and goodness knows that you, dear listener, have to gather your strength, too. By the time you hear this podcast, though, there will be a blog post available over at StoryWonk.com with the combined polls for the fifth season of Buffy and the second season of Angel. You can head on over there and you can cast your vote for favorite and least favorite episode in both seasons, favorite character, favorite performance, and favorite writer in both seasons. We will then, next week, bring you two season wrap-up shows. On Monday, our season wrap-up show for season five of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. On Thursday, our season wrap-up show for season two of Angel. We're going to discuss our feelings about the seasons as a whole, about the various arcs, the high points, the low points, everything. Everything in between. We'll discuss the results of the fan polls and we will discuss, too, your correspondence, your thoughts on Buffy Season 5 and Angel Season 2. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at storywonk.com or by calling our voicemail line 252-505-WONK. That's 252-505-9665. Lonnie, have I forgotten anything? Does that do it?
1: I don't think so. Well, don't forget to go to the forum. We have lots of discussion on the forum. That's where you want to go. And you can also leave us your feedback there. We do love voicemails. So go ahead and give us a call. They're wonderful to play in these feedback shows. And we also would like to send a big shout out to our Patreon supporters. These are the amazing people who make it possible for us to do everything we do here at StoryWonk. To become a patron of the arts and gain access to exclusive StoryWonk content, go to patreon.com slash StoryWonk and pledge us a dollar a month or whatever you can afford. Until next time, I'm Lonnie Diane Rich.
2: I'm Alistair Stevenson. and this is Dusted.
0: Arg.